Welcome, Seekers of Truth, coming to you from the edge of the known universe, better known as the Granite State, home of Betty and Barney Hill. Through the magic of electronic alchemy, a portal to another dimension has opened. You are about to make a metaphysical connection. This is the Fedora Chronicles Network. Greg Cameron returns to the Metaphysical Connection to chat with Walt Schnabel and me, Eric Runderking Fisk, about his latest book, Tuned In, The Paranormal World of Music, and the connection between the music and specific sounds in the paranormal. Mr. Cameron also shares with us many experiences that many musicians have had with inspired songs or whole albums with special meaning and messages. We also talk about the connection between many abductees and neural downloads. Be sure to check out our homepage, metaphysicalpodcast.com, and choose episode 82 for our show notes and links to where to purchase all of Grant Cameron's books via Amazon. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Uh, Grant, I'm uh, really delighted that you could join us today. Yeah, thanks. Um, I, uh, I, when I heard about your new book, I, I was extremely excited for, for various reasons. Um, number one, I've, I'm not a musician, but I've always loved music. And, and I think you described yourself as kind of a non-musical person, which um, is, I guess was a surprise to you as to why you were going to go down this road yeah um with with the topic that you that you chose for for tuned in um by the way for our um listeners who who aren't familiar with the few listeners who aren't familiar with grant's work um my could mom you, and my could you give us a, a little uh synopsis of of what your professional credentials are i know you you were in the ufo field for years and years and years and then you had a kind of a miraculous event which kind of led you in a new direction so can, can you talk a little bit about that grant yeah well basically i start 1975 i'm going to university and there's a small town uh, about 35 40 miles out of the major city where i live which is winnipeg manitoba canada and i say to my friends let's go see what they're looking at i really don't have any interest in ufos or extraterrestrials or anything it's just that this mm-hmm. town there was a story kept appearing on the newspaper that this thing was being seen there and we eventually went out after three months um, when a local TV station actually filmed it on the ground and we went out there and um, drove around for an hour didn't see anything we're gonna go home it's a total waste of time and this thing flies in front of the car and that sort of dragged me down the rabbit hole and I tried to I did a manuscript of all the people in the town who had seen stuff um, nobody would publish it. The local publisher who should have published it said, Mr. Cameron, you may believe in this kind of stuff. Count me among the unbelievers. At which point I said, well, this is a total waste of time. And then um, I wasn't interested in sightings. I've never been interested in sightings since that time. And all I was interested then is somebody in the world must know what I saw. Somebody must have figured this thing out. Somebody must be powerful enough to have the answer. And I started this long 43-year search to find out who had the answer to what UFOs is all about. And it led me to the Canadian government to start. 
what they were doing in the early 50s. And then it led to Dr. Eric Walker at Penn State University, chased him around for eight years. Uh, and he led to the presidents. He was going to put some of his material at the Truman Library. And it was when I was at the Truman Library, I suddenly sort of had an inspiration. Well, maybe the president, he's the most powerful guy in the world, supposedly. He must know what the hell's going on. So I uh, started looking at presidents and I did that for, oh, I guess 25 years. And um, I've sort of given up on that too. The president knows, but he's not really going to tell you. But I set up a big website that had, you know, which presidents had seen stuff, where the documents, uh, you know, th the whole thing about whether they're briefed, all this kind of stuff. And then, as you mentioned, I had this sort of download experience in 2012 where I'm sort of given the answer to my 1975 question, what, who, who knows what's going on, which was sort of a, came with absolute certainty, was the, the bottom line to the whole UFO thing is consciousness, non-local consciousness. Right. And it was at that point that I made this sort of shift away and I started um, started actually seeing stuff. It's, then everything started to make sense uh, to understand how the world actually works and how reality works, that consciousness is primary, that matter is secondary, that sort of thing. And um, so then uh, with these synchronistic events started to happen, and the one that you mentioned is the, the tuned-in thing where I say the most important people in the UFO field are the experiencers, that you can look at all the videos you want. All it's going to tell you is, right. yes, there's something mm -hmm. very strange going on, and we probably didn't build it. And you can look at all the sightings you want, and it'll say, yes, something very strange is going on, and we probably didn't build it. You can look at all the medals you want, and I can even say that now, that if you look at all the medals that have been recovered, the Jacques Vallée study, every single piece of metal is different, which means uh, this may have nothing to do with UFOs. They're just throwing this stuff out to sort of, uh, you know, mystify us and make us think that it's got nothing to do with UFOs. And so I say the only mm -hmm. thing that's important is to talk to the experiencers. They are the people who claim that they're interacting with the UFO phenomena. And that's where I've sort of spent my time doing. And that's when I, one of the experiencers, and I'm not sure if it, I think it was 2014. That's where this tuned in thing comes from. That, uh, and this is Chris Bledsoe, who's uh, an experiencer in North Carolina. This is the guy that Warner Brothers was going to throw $80 million at his story. It's a very, very bizarre story involving five witnesses, you know, five different aliens the first night, uh, or five different alien sightings the first night, uh, 13 UFOs, uh, just a bizarre story that goes on and on year after year. And um, he phoned me up and he said um, he was dealing with the people, that, the beings that he's dealing with, he calls them the guardians. And uh, he phoned me up and he said, they have a message for you. And I go, oh, okay. And he said, they want you to know that the message is in the music. And I said, well, that's kind of interesting, but Chris, you're talking to someone who doesn't care about music. My whole family is musical, but I have no interest in music. I don't listen to music. I um, have never played a musical instrument, nor do I ever intend to play a musical instrument. And he kept going and he said, well, you know, the, the songs, he was talking about these tapes that suddenly appeared in his truck or something. I can't remember what the, the exact story was, but he said, well, the songs you should listen to are uh, Cashmere by Led Zeppelin. And I go, yeah, whatever, you know. <laughs> and um, so then he said, and the other song you should listen to is um, After the Gold Rush by Neil Young. Ah, and, that's, and it was that's, that, 
Uh-oh. That's, that's where my interest came in. I, I, when I, I saw the book, um, and aside from the fact that you wrote the book, which you know, which is an attractive yeah. thing for me, um, I've been a Neil Young fan for you know, since college. Um, yeah. And and not just not really just the music, but it's it's the way his lyrics resonate with me, and particularly after the Gold Rush, I can I can remember getting that album and laying on my bed and listening to it over and over, and that particular song just for some reason just resonated with me we've used and, it yeah. and after reading your book i can i i really understand it more now that he's he was downloading something um yeah which, which i guess is what you you know what i'll let you talk about that yeah walt yeah. we've also used that song at least twice as bumper musics or intros in in previous podcasts mm-hmm. so the idea that he mentioned that uh uh goosebumps yeah, yeah. yeah. and i i never would have gone after it except that i live in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, which I mm. always make the joke that not pe- even in, people in Canada don't want to visit Winnipeg. And <laughs> so it's really not known for anything except it, a couple of major musicians came out of here, and one of them is Neil Young. He grew up here. So mm. that was what dragged me down. I w- if it had not been for Neil Young, I never would touch the story because uh, I just said, Neil Young is involved with this UFO thing? And he went, yeah. And I, So then I looked in it, and that's when I saw the the, the lyrics at the end of the song are basically the the stuff that a lot of experiences talk about the you know 39 percent of all experiencers uh, claim on board the ship they're showing the the screen which the with the environmental devastation and all this kind of stuff right. and, neil, and neil young is a big environmentalist he's been up here mm-hmm. in canada Absolutely. trying to shut, shut yeah. the, uh, the oil sands down and stuff like that mm-hmm. and when i saw the lyrics and saw this you know you know this thing about the silver seeds picking up the chosen ones which is what yvonne smith calls the the experiencers the abductees I, I was just sort of fascinated, and I started to look, and um, I, I, that led me to like the whole thing with the downloads, because I'd had the download and the idea that that the first download that when I started searching that with musicians was um, Paul McCartney and Yesterday, which came in a dream in the middle of the night, and he gets mm-hmm. up and you know he composes this song and starts passing it around to people to ask, you know, is anybody who played this? He thought somebody had played it. And so it just led one thing led to another, and suddenly um, there, we had piles and piles of these bizarre uh, encounters with uh, downloads. And I came across the book by Michael Luckman called Alien Rock, and he was a producer in in New York City, and he had he was friends with Michael Jackson and uh, um, uh, what's his name's wife. Um, see, I'm not a musician person. Um, um, the guy that did uh, the the alien thing in the 1970s, um, uh, the British guy. Anyway, uh, so he, David he, Bowie. He knew, David Bowie. David Bowie. Yeah. So he knew David Bowie's wife very well, and got a lot of this stuff, and had had written this this book about you know Presley's contact with with um, UFOs and the Stones and the fact that they had you know UFO detectors in their house and stuff like this. And this very bizarre book is 325 pages of one musician after another. So I started to look, but I was more interested in the experience of thing. Why are why are the beings uh, dealing with 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 UFOs? Is there actually a message? This sort of thing. And when I got going, then um, Michael Lachman contacted me, and he said, um, "We we talked about it a bit," and he said, "I've got enough stuff. I can do a second book." So he started to do a second music book on on the the, the connection between rock musicians and UFOs. And then he had a stroke and died. So I don't know what happened to his manuscript. He must have been pretty close to finishing it. 
So there was my manuscript and then two other uh, manuscripts, and that's what people may not realize, is that there's just an absolutely massive, massive connection between uh, UFOs and music. And there there must be some truth to the fact that there is some sort of message, whether it's um, an emotional, uh, vibrational, um, uh, lyrics, whatever it is, that this is being used to sort of... um, get messages across, raise consciousness, uh, whatever you want to, to say, that there is some sort of bizarre connection there. Yeah, you make, you make that point in the book that, um, you know, the message is not going to be blatant. It's not going to be, you know, a yeah. UFO landing on the, on the lawn of the White House. It's going to be more subtle um, because we're, we're really meant to, to learn from it, you know, not to have it kind of just put in our face. Um, and, and I always got that feeling from, from Neil Young's music that it, it's, it's, it's like he's downloading or it's like he's be, being able to envision another reality or something. He's got other songs, too, other than After the Gold Rush. There's uh, uh, Powderfinger and um, Pocahontas is another one where it's almost like he can actually see into another realm or, or he was actually there himself in some sense. Um, one of the things I really liked about your book is that you, you make the connection between musicians um, or songwriters and, and or musicians um, and their DNA connection to, to other musicians. And um, can, can you talk a little bit about that? How there's a, you actually drew parallels between current musicians like, say, Bruce Springsteen and a past um, musician you know, composer from, say, the 1800s. Oh, yeah, that was, yeah, I, I sort of forgotten about that. That's the, the work on the reincarnation thing with yes, uh, yes. the people who are doing the reincarnation work. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, I sort of got dragged into that one, too, and that was, um, I don't know if it's in the book, but uh, I, I had seen the connection, and I was pretty fascinated where uh, people, the the whole idea was that people looked the same from one life to an, to another. Right. And so they were looking at famous um, people like comedians and rock stars and stuff. And they were looking at <clears throat> former uh, people in, in past lives. And what sort of uh, made me sort of drink the Kool-Aid on that one was I was at UFO Congress and I'm talking to Paul Davids. And Paul Davids is the guy who did the Roswell movie, and um, he was. We, we sort of talk about these kind of things from time to time. And I remember we were sitting in, in UFO Congress in the front row, and there was nobody in the room at the time. And I'm saying to him, uh, Paul, Paul, you, you got to listen to this interview. Uh, I'm going to send you the link. It's about uh, how people look the same um, from lifetime to lifetime. And I'm talking to him, and then he's he's sort of hitting me with with this book. And I'm I'm trying to tell him the story, and he hits me with this book again. I'm going, what are you doing? I'm looking. He said, look at my book, and it's a book on poetry. And so I look at the book, and it's like, you know, I'm not into poetry either. And it's like, okay, that's kind of cool, but whatever, you know. And I'm trying to tell the story, and he says, look at this picture, and it's Mark Twain, and he he says, doesn't look like me. And I go, what? You're Mark Twain? <laughs> it's like, and I I couldn't <laughs> believe it that that there's this synchronistic thing that I'm telling him this story about how people look the same from lifetime to lifetime, and he's showing me this book where he's got Mark Twain and he and he, he's the idea, and you see some of the the synchronicities of the story that he his connection with with Mark Twain. It was absolutely unbelievable. I just was floored, and he does look absolutely like Mark Mark Twain. And there was this thing about the Raven, the famous poet, and the Raven, and his his connection with the Raven, and it's just mm. bizarre. So that that. Really really sold me on the fact that there um, uh, 
uh, life is much more complex. Like I had a download, which I haven't really gotten into, I haven't talked too much about, happened in 2014. And that was um, a download which was much more complex than the first one. And it, it it was 24 items, about 24 items that sort of popped into my head. I remember I was walking down the street and this stuff's coming and I'm trying to write this stuff down. And it's basically the idea that um, it's an either or, that we've made numerous mistakes. And I can give you a couple examples. So the prime one is, is the world consciousness or it based, is, it, is, a, is the the ground of being consciousness or is it matter if it's matter if everything's made out of nuts and bolts then it's one world but if it's made out of consciousness it's a completely different world everything changes and we've made the assumption that it's 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 matter and it's probably consciousness which means every, everything we think is basically at, at the foundation wrong so that was the one and the other one was um the idea is it one life or is it multiple lives. So if it's if you believe we only have one life, that's all we live, then it's one world. But if you believe it's reincarnation, then suddenly you get all sorts of stuff like soul contract. Uh, we're coming in here to do stuff. Uh, we've lived before. Uh, there's uh, uh, life is um, sort of like a pattern and everything changes again. Or is life random or is it pattern? So uh, the basic scientific uh, paradigm is it's all random. It's meaningless. It's just background noise. Consciousness is, is an illusion, all this kind of stuff. But if... Um, if it's a pattern, then you can predict the future. It's all this kind of stuff. So it was this sort of download thing that that led me to understand when it came to musicians that if it's multiple lives and stuff like that, then it's a much more complex world that that these people are doing things over lifetimes and that it basically life is a learning experience. It's really not some sort of thing where we're here to gather up toys and whoever's got the most toys when they die wins. It's more a thing where uh, we're here to learn lessons and that these musicians are part of this process and that you and I are part of a process. We are here to do something just like the musicians who come into the world um, to do things we have our role as well. And a, a number of the musicians actually did. I, I'm pretty sure it's in the book where uh, Colin Andrews, the uh, famous crop circle guy, who actually was the guy that gave the lecture when I had the download experience in 2012, had talked to me about five groups of musicians who had come to him, very, very famous musicians. One was John Anderson from Yes. It was Renaissance. There was, um, and the, the, <clears throat> the one I'm going to tell you about now is the, the one with Moody Blues. And the Moody Blues um, are really into the UFO thing. I mean, people do not realize how much they're in. They don't publicly talk about it much, but um, they were abducted in 1967, going from Manchester into London. Uh, they really don't deny this. Um, one of them has actually drawn the the being. They um, uh, Mike Pinder has actually talked about this uh, sort of situation. Uh, he's actually said on the record that uh, there are lyrics in their songs that came from elsewhere. And Colin told me this story about um, being contacted by uh, Pinder and the lead guitarist. And they wanted to talk to him after one of his lectures. And so uh, they did the lecture. And then he said they went for dinner. And Pinder and the lead guitarist are going back and forth. And they're telling this story. And a uh, very, very bizarre story. And Colin said, you could tell they, I mean, they were making this up. Because one, one would say this, and then this, go back and forth and back and forth. And they were telling this story about how before they were born, they were sitting on a, sitting at a table with some elder people at this round, in this round room or round table or something. 
and that they were told they're going to be musicians, they were going to come into the world, they were going to do all this kind of stuff. And then the lead guitarist said, tell them, about, tell them how we came back in, tell them about that black hole. And there was this sort of a black hole that they entered, and this is how they came back into the earth through this reincarnation process. So when you hear these very top musicians, and uh, a lot of people in the UFO community will uh, say that they were drawn to the Moody Blues music yeah, and, like the, and the yeah. lyrics and stuff like that. And uh, I've actually got I have a, a YouTube channel, um, uh, White House UFO, and we have a guy, I don't know if you've ever interviewed him, uh, Forrest Crawford, who is the um, sort of he introduces people at the big um, Ozark UFO con conference. He was a state director from UFON for many years, now is in New York City. And he has this bizarre thing we had, we, we call rabbit hole meetings, where um, what do we do is we just set up a camera and then Linda Howe's there and Forrest Crawford's there and I'm there and there's a bunch of other people there and people are just sitting in a hotel room, you know, after the conference, like in, in the evening and just talking about this and that and people are just, you know, talking about whatever and, and we call it a rabbit hole meeting and, um, Forrest Crawford starts talking about these synchronicities in his life with the Moody Blues. It's just like totally bizarre. When, when people see that, I'm going to put this on YouTube, it's just like wild. I mean, he, he told me about this years ago, about this bizarre connection he has to the, to the Moody Blues. But uh, this is the kind of stuff when you get into this, it's, uh, it's pretty weird stuff. And it did start with the music. And then when the music, there was so much music stuff, that I decided to put it back. So the music book's been done for two years, and I, I sort of pushed the music stuff all to one to one book, and I realized that it wasn't just music. It was all sorts of stuff. It was uh, artists. It was uh, Nobel Prize winners. It, it was um, savants. It was people who've done psychedelics. It's people who had near-death experiences. And all these people were, just like musicians, were getting pieces of the puzzle and were tapping into whatever you want to call it, higher consciousness, Kashuk record, higher self, whatever you want to call that, that, that everything is consciousness and that some people are able to tap into higher consciousness and bring down answers, bring down lyrics, bring, bring down all this sort of stuff that all the answers uh, potentially are in this higher consciousness and it's just a matter of accessing it, which is sort of backed up by experiencers who the ones that answered the question of the 4,000 people who answered the question, um, they stated that 40% of all experiencers stated that at one point during their experience, they knew the answer to everything in the universe. And that indicates that they're at some point during their abduction experience or encounter or whatever, uh, they encountered higher self, that they were tapped into higher self. And that when they came back into the physical world, uh, they went back, you know, through the river of forgetfulness, and they basically forgot everything that they had they had done. And I've talked to lots of people who said, yes, they they remember this. They don't remember what they saw, but they know for a fact, almost like me, came with absolute certainty. They know for a fact that at one point they knew the answer to everything in the universe. So all the answers are there, and so the musicians are just tapping into this. And so I did a book called Inspired where I go through all these different types of download experiences, you know, the Nobel Prizes and the psychedelics and savants and have a chapter for, you know, UFO people and all this kind of stuff. And you basically see the same pattern. And the musician stuff was just so weird, so much of it. In fact, there's a second book that uh, we're starting to gather material for. There's just so many bizarre stories of, uh, you know, people get entire symphonies in their head, people who can listen to four symphonies at a time in their head, just very, very bizarre stories with, with musicians that shows the capacity of, of the, the human mind.
Uh, one of the things that um, one of one of the people that you talked about again in the book um, is Jim Morrison from The Doors. Yeah. Um, and I'm again, I'm a, it's a toss up as to if I'm a bigger fan of Morrison or, or Neil Young. But um, <clears throat> and again, he was a very unusual guy. He, he had a very short career, but um, a very intense career, I guess you could say. And before The Doors became The Doors, um, he he was able to envision whole concerts where he was, you know, he was in a band. And, and so he was obviously downloading that future scene of, you know, when the doors would become famous, um, way before they were even formed before that. So, so he, again, was tapping into some kind of a, a, a consciousness. Um, why do you, why do you think certain people are, you, do you think they're chosen or do you think it has to do again with reincarnation or are they yeah. a reincarnated version of another being who was, you know, a famous musician or a a composer or whatever. Why? Why do you? What do you think accounts for that? I guess. Is well, yeah, that is. that goes back to these 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 uh, twenty four things. I mean, if you if we assume it's one life, well, then none of this stuff makes sense. But if you yeah, suddenly yeah. start going to multiple lives, then this stuff starts to make sense. Or the the idea that whether it's matter, if it's if it's consciousness is an illusion and it's all just random background noise, well, it doesn't make any sense. But if you understand that consciousness is all that there is, everything is made out of consciousness, that the physical world really doesn't exist, then this stuff starts to, again, make more sense. And what you have, I think, with the musicians is, I mean, they asked... Um, um, Roger Lear, who did the implant uh, removals, the 17 implants removals. Mm -hmm. Right. And they asked him, uh, what's common between all these these experiencers that you did the implants? And he said, number one, they're all right brain creative people. And that's musicians. They're all right brain people. Yeah. They're, they're yeah. not very left rational analytical people. Mm -hmm. And then Roger Lear said, and all implants are on the left side of the body. And most people would know, but as soon as I heard that, I went, "Oh, that, that's exactly right." Because I mean, all if they put the aliens are putting the implants in the left side of the body, they're interacting with the right brain because the the right brain runs the left side of the body and vice mm -hmm. versa. So they're tapping into the right brain, and the right brain is the non-local brain. So. What, what I say when it comes to all these download experiences, whether it's, uh, you know, near-death experiences or psychedelics or whatever it is, meditation, hypnosis, it's all the same thing. Remote viewing, it's shutting down the rational analytical left brain. People will say you got to quiet the mind, but it's not really you're quieting the mind. You're quieting the left rational analytical brain where this little voice is talking in your head and it keep, keeps saying, oh, everything's bad. You're stupid. This is you, you think you're being hypnotized. This is an illusion. Uh, this is garbage. This can't be happening. That sort of stuff. And if you can shut that little voice down, uh, you can pop out into that world. And musicians are able to do that. They're they're this creativity thing. Whereas uh, you know the rational analytical lawyer type or mathematician or something like that uh, really can't do that. They they're sort of stuck in this world. And the, ex the, the prime example to understand how this works, I always re reference people to a lecture given by Jill Bolte-Taylor, who was um, did, I think, was potentially the second most popular TED Talk of all times. And she was a, um, a neuroanatomist at um, Harvard University working in the brain bank. 
And she was trying to figure out schizophrenia because her brother was schizophrenic. And so she was doing all this research. And at 38 years old, she has a left brain hemorrhage. She has, you know, all this blood building up in the left brain side of her brain. And she talks about this experience of what this is like as this thing is happening. It happens early in the morning. Uh, she has the pain. She suddenly um, can't see her hands. She starts to become one with the universe. This kind of oneness experience that, that people will describe. And her left brain is shutting down. It's being flooded with with blood and then the left brain comes back online and it says to her you know you're in trouble you better do something this is bad you you're in trouble you got to do something and then she's back into the right brain and she's and, and she's saying oh this is so cool i mean how many neuroanatomists can actually watch themselves having a stroke and then she's back in the left brain and saying you got to do something and she goes back and forth the brain is she's going one side of the brain to the other and then suddenly the left brain completely shuts down and the way she describes it is the voice that's in you, that's talking to you all the time in your brain, uh, just completely shuts off. She said it was like a remote control, like muting it. It wasn't didn't calm down. It just went off like that. And it was gone for eight weeks. She had four weeks till the operation, and four weeks after the operation, till the left brain started coming back online. And it then she realized that uh, this voice was gone. And she said the other thing that 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 didn't that was gone when she had when the left brain was shut down is there was no fear. Fear did not exist. And so when this, the voice started to come back online, she realized that this voice was there and she realized that, that there's these two distinct parts of, of the mind and she's able to control this voice. She's able to shut it down. And that's what happens with musicians is they can sort of uh, what we call disassociate, which is what happened to me when I had my download experience with Colin Andrews. I wasn't interested in crop circles. Uh, I was at UFO Congress, which if you've ever been there, you know, it goes from 8 o'clock in the morning till maybe 11 o'clock at night. And you don't go to all the lectures. There's just so many lectures, so much stuff going on that you sort of skip lectures. If you're not really interested in this topic or that topic, you'll skip the lecture. You may even skip an entire day of lectures and, you know, visit with people that you've seen, you know, haven't seen for a year or whatever. And so I was in the Colin Andrews lecture, and that's what happened to me, I believe, is that I disassociated. I was sitting there. I wasn't really paying attention to the lecture. I was sort of thinking about other stuff. I was sort of meditating, and I was just basically quieting the mind, and all of a sudden, boom, all this stuff popped into my head. It all just sort of, all these pieces went together. And uh, so that's why I think it's happening. So you can. So your your right your right brain took over, kind of, and uh, yeah, it's able became to became the dominant it. the dominant hemisphere, and, and yeah. sort of blocked out all of those uh, self editing critical things that your your left brain tells you. And and um, so maybe that's what hap that's what's happening when musicians get you know get an inspiration for a song, or their their right brain has totally. Mm -hmm taken over their existence sort of or their or their creative existence anyway yeah, yeah um, the right the right brain can access whatever that that higher consciousness is where everything mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. and that's what people i in the beginning of the book i have that whole chapter on inspiration where right. i i just go through all these different musicians and they'll talk about the fact that when they get on stage they basically get taken over that they basically mm -hmm. aren't themselves it, it just it just happens and uh, i even described the one story that i mean another famous band that came out of winnipeg was um the guess who and at, in the night, late 60s in canada they were out selling the beatles i mean this is a very famous band they did it was yeah 
Yeah. Uh, famous, Burton, famous Burton Cummings, right? Yeah. Was the, uh, yeah. Was the songwriter, I guess. Yeah. And <clears throat> and the f- most famous song they had was American Woman, which was number number one for three weeks on the on the charts in the United mm-hmm. States. So and, it was a big song. And yeah. um, they tell the story of how this song came to be, and it was the the same sort of thing where they're in a concert and Bachman has broken a string on his guitar and he's fixing it, and Burton Cummings is behind stage buying some albums or records from some guy, and then Cummings starts to uh, uh, play and he said I got to go I'll get those records later he goes running back on stage and uh, they uh, they start this riff and and Bachman is playing this American woman thing and uh, Burton Cummings starts singing this thing and they they sing this song and uh, in the front row they see this kid with a this is 1968 the kid's got a handheld tape recorder and this is the first time these things are coming out and they realize this kid's going to bootleg the show. So what they tell is the manager is to get the kid, get the kid's tape to stop him from bootlegging it. They grab the kid's tape and then after the concert, um, they're playing back the tape this kid was doing and here on the, the first song in the second set is American Woman and they're all looking at each other going, where did that come from? Like they didn't remember writing it, singing it. It just absolutely came from nowhere. It was one of these spontaneous songs, which I have uh, a bunch of them at the back of the book in one of the appendixes. Mm-hmm. And uh, if it hadn't been for that kid with the tape recorder, American Woman would never have existed because nobody nobody wrote it, nobody uh, sang it. It just it just came out at the beginning of this second set. Something something that always puzzled me, and I, and I think your your book basically answers the question. Is that it seems like some art, some uh, composers or, or musicians anyway, they they have just like one hit or they have one album that yep. is is really really good, or maybe they have a creative period where they have two or three, you know, albums that um, <clears throat> are just genius, and then after that it's just sort of okay, you know, um, and and maybe that answers the question that I, that I could never really answer as to why that is. Um, so it, it seems like for that period of time or, or maybe even for that five minute span, yeah. something just opens up, um, yeah. you know, there's yeah. a channel that opens. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's um, what I point out in the book is that yeah, the, yeah. the songs that come on the downloads are the most famous songs. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, yesterday, mm-hmm. let it be. Um, uh, I talk about Carol King, and and I show the video. I don't show the video anymore because we always get in these copyright issues of of showing the video. But I, there's a video of if you want to look it up, Carol King, where she's the first woman ever to sell 20 million albums, and she right. gets the song "You Got a Friend," and she's t- she's describing this to a Japanese film crew, and she's saying it started to come, and she said, "Oh," and I thought to myself. Oh, I hope I remember this. And this is the song that that basically made her absolutely famous. And um, uh, they, they have that song, and then Sting describes his most famous song that I think at one, I think he was making at one point two thousand dollars a day just from people playing the song. And that was a song he did in nineteen eighty three, and the name is escaping me, but it was his most famous song. And again, he said. Oh, that one took like oh, uh, five, ten minutes at the most to write that song. And it was his most famous song. And that's what you find is that these songs that, that are the most famous songs 
are these ones that come in downloads. And I can even, um, I think I can even tell when, when I'm listening uh, uh, to music. And the thing is, I don't really know who the musician is, whatever. But I can be in a mall or something and I can hear a song and I can go, and I've done it before. I go, this thing's a download. And I'll go check. Sure enough, it's a download that, that it came through some mysterious way. It's like there's something about the song. It just sort of stands out compared to other songs. And that may be what it is. It's the person that has this one very inspired moment and um, th- that that's what makes them famous. And there's a really good example of this. And that is, um, uh, oh, shoot, now I'm going to forget his name. Um, the, um, uh, he did the, the album Supernatural. Um, oh, Carlos Santana. Carlos Santana. So Carlos Santana was famous in the 60s, 70s. And mm-hmm. then he doesn't do an album. And he tells a story. It's 1998. And he's, he does a meditation thing where he sits and meditates. He's got little candles going. He's got a yellow pad. A lot of musicians have the tape recorder or the yellow pad beside him in case something comes into their head. He's got the yellow pad and he faces a wall. He sits and faces a wall. So he tells a story. He hasn't done an album in 20 years. He's off the charts. I mean, he's like this old guy now. And he gets this, he's, he's dealing not with, with alien beings. He's dealing, he believes, with this archangel Metatron. So he tells this story, he's meditating, and all of a sudden he, he, he starts getting this message from Metatron. And Metatron says, you haven't done an album for 20 years, we're going to put you back on the airwaves. And we're going to get a bunch of famous musicians who are going to join you, and you have this message to deliver to the world, yada, yada, yada. And he said, uh, the meditation's over, he writes all this stuff down, and suddenly he starts getting phone calls from what we, what I believe are maybe possibly experiences. Uh, Eric Clapton, who um, whose son is Michael Lee Hill, if you've ever interviewed him. I mean, he's like uh, Anunnaki, uh, absolutely believes uh, totally that he's been picked for this mission. And uh, so he gets phone call from Eric Clapton, he gets phone call from Rob Thomas, who's definitely an experiencer, and they say, uh, they say, well, we, uh, we we don't know. We we think we're supposed to do a, an album with you, and um, we don't really know, but we, we know we have to phone you. And so all these people go together with him, and they put out this album, and it's exactly what the channeled message said. Uh, it sold 30 million albums. It mm-hmm. won eight Grammy Awards, and suddenly this Huge. guy who hadn't done an album for 20 years is suddenly famous again, and he puts mm-hmm. this, this new album out. So, that yeah, that stuff does absolutely happen. There are all sorts of examples of, uh, of these um, sort of momentary things where um, people are sort of tapped in. And then they're 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 out of it again, and it's it's a very s- 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 sort of spontaneous thing where um, people will have most musicians will have like five or six really good hits, and that's basically it. The rest of the stuff is nobody really knows what it is. Kind of and, average, yeah. Yeah, or there's the bonus story. Did, is it in the book the the bonus story with? Um, oh shoot, I should have my my thing here. Um, I'll have to forget. There's a story that Bono wrote a song. Um, a, sort of a country song. Uh, I just can't think of the musician that um, that um, did it, but it's just the, the most bizarre synchronicity story of all times. Where Bono writes this song that comes into his head that 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 goes high in the charts, but he writes it for somebody else. It's just bizarre. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the name is escaping me. The musician that, that he actually wrote the song for. If I remember it, I'll pop in. But anyway, go ahead. Um, I I read about. Um this is not in your book, but I, I've read a lot about Neil Young, and I, I keep getting back to Neil. But yeah. um, he, when he was working on um, one of his earlier albums, um, 
Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere. Uh, it was one of his uh, maybe second solo album after he left Buffalo Springfield. But he he was really sick. He had 103 degree fever. And he wrote Down by the River and Cowgirl in the Sand within 15 minutes. Yeah. So so yeah. there you go. You know, two, two of his probably most famous songs, I guess, um, that just came to him, you know. And uh, he... I don't know whether maybe the fever had something to do with it too. It might have altered his, you know, his his brain pattern a little bit or something. He also is, uh, um, I think he's epileptic too. So that that yeah. may have something to do with the with the brain wiring of the brain or something too. Sure. But, um, fever yeah. is one of the things that 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 is that's the thing is it's you're able to dissociate. It's basically shutting shutting things down and popping you out. Mm-hmm. And and it's the same thing with. Uh, where I when I do the downloads with um, um, other people like uh, Edgar Casey, I mean, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of it is head trauma. So Edgar Casey has this, um, uh, you know, the famous American psychic. That he starts when his father right. hits him one time. He's he's doing uh, the spelling book and he can't spell. I didn't know that. Fa- and his father gets frustrated and he hits him, uh, hits him in the head and he, he goes flying off the chair and he lands on the floor and he's lying there. And that's when he gets the sort of the uh, message from this sort of an angel type uh, figure where she says, uh, rest for a minute and we will help you. And he puts he said, daddy, daddy, let me let me just uh, sleep a minute and then I'll know the, the, the words in my book. And he puts his head on the book. And he 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 wakes up after this little short nap, and he's able to uh, do every single word that's in the spelling book. And from then on, he was able to do this thing where he could put his head on a book, and he could he could wake up and know what was in the book. And the second thing he had when he started the channeling thing, where he'd say, "Here's the body, uh, do this, do that, all this sort of stuff," where he would do the medical readings, happened after he got hit in the head with a baseball. So it's this kind of thing where uh, you have uh, even even with like near death experiences, the same thing. You, you get get thrown out of your body you have this trauma thing of it happens and it pops you into this other world so yeah fever is one of the 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 key things where you're you're being sort of disassociated you're being thrown out of your body or it's shutting down the part that's that's blocking the the message Mm -hmm. well casey was uh, known as a sleeping prophet so um you you spent quite a bit of time in the book on the uh, dream state how how um Musicians often receive inspiration through dreams, um, which I thought was interesting too. That that I think is a little more uh, known. I think a lot of musicians have talked about that. Where and and even writers. I know a lot of writers. I'm I'm a fiction writer, so um, a lot of writers, um, either for prose or for songs or whatever they're writing, they get inspiration through dreams, and um, they you know quickly write down what what came to them during a dream after they wake up because if not it, it kind of goes away real quickly yeah. um i know billy yeah. in your book billy joel talked about that that he you know he dreamt whole symphonies and then he got up in the morning and he'd say oh well i'll remember that and then he he, he didn't remember it and yeah. glimpses of it may come back here and there but um yeah there's a couple of famous ones with books i mean people don't realize like the wizard of oz was a is an instantaneous download he's reading children's books or a story to his four boys or whatever and he said suddenly it started coming in his head and he was mm-hmm. madly trying to write the story down and he ran out of paper and he started writing on the back of envelopes the same as all all the harry potter books came instantaneously to jk rawlings on a train going in from uh, delayed train
train going from Manchester into London, and she falls asleep and wakes up, and she she told the story to Oprah. It's on the internet. She tells the story to Oprah where she said, and all the stuff was coming into my head, all the names and the, the stuff and all this stuff was coming and I didn't have any paper and I didn't know what to do and it was coming into my head. And I tell the story of the, the 12 steps and 12 traditions, um, which uh, people get very upset about. And uh, the guy who did that, Wilson, there was both the guys that wrote that, that book. Um, were um, were into seances, and they had a seance room, and it and the AA has actually restored Wilson's house, and they actually have the spook room, is the seance room, in in his house, and uh, he there was letters released um, after he died to his minister where he said he got help writing the 12 steps and 12 traditions and it came off on a Ouija board from a 15th century monk by the name of Boniface and a lot of AA people get very upset at me and I go well I'll give you the references I'll give you the actual letters where he said this uh, he was a very uh, kind of strange guy who had this bizarre download experience when he sort of became sober in the 1930s where he was yelling out to God and suddenly this thing appears in his room and stuff like that so it's, it's very very common and some of the most famous books of all times, uh, even experience your thing. I mean, the, the famous book, The Holographic Universe by Michael Talbot. Michael Talbot admitted um, to, um, or, or Bud Hopkins talked to Linda Howe and confirmed that Michael Talbot was one of his clients, that he was an experiencer, he was an abductee, and that Michael Talbot had told him the entire Holographic Universe book was a download. Uh, Erroneous Zones, most Biggest, biggest selling book of the 1970s was a mm -hmm. download. If you hear um, the, the story of how that was written, it was it was a download as well. And 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 I've had these experiences, so you know I've had these two sort of major downloads. So I know what happens. That it comes very very fast, and it it comes with absolute certainty. It's almost like um, Nobel prizes. The the Einstein, the theory of relativity, came in a in in a, in a dream, and Einstein is quoted. Einstein said, I knew I had to remember that dream. In fact, you could say that my entire career was based upon a meditation on that on a dream. And the idea of the of the atomic atom by by Bohr uh, came in a, a dream. A horse he was taken to a horse track and they were talking about the how the electrons move around the, the nucleus and they have to stay in the track like horses and you can't step on the line. And when you move from one to another, you have to one horse has to move ahead, one has to back up. You can't be in the same same thing. And this is where the the idea for the atomic uh, atomic structure of the atom came from. So you mm -hmm. see all this kind of stuff and we think, oh, the person just figured it out. They, you know, they're really smart. They're uh, uh, no, no, no. It's a lot of this stuff uh, they got from somewhere else. The the hologram, the laser, all both these came when the guy is sitting on a park bench and suddenly yeah. the thing popped in their head. It, it's very, very common. I know Tesla, uh, Nikola Tesla, who invented some amazing yeah. uh, things with electricity. Uh, we've we've done a whole show about him, but uh, he used to get downloads like that. Um, yeah, yeah. The big one he got was the alternating uh, yes. motor mm -hmm. where he was walking mm -hmm. through the park in Budapest or wherever it was, and it, suddenly this thing came into his head, and he had somebody with him, and he drew it in the sand. He drew the the, the diagram mm -hmm. of, of this thing in the sand. So yeah, definitely he was he was tapped in. And um, or you have like Edison, the same thing. I mean, he had this thing where you can actually do this, where um, he would take the steel steel 
uh, bowl. I mean, you heard this story. He would sit in a chair, and he always said he never slept. But he would he would nap in his in his lab all the time. So he would take two steel balls, put them in his hand, put them on the edge of a chair, and then at the bottom below the chair, he would have a steel bowl, and he would just sit there. And then he would, of course, go. He'd sort of fall asleep, and he'd go through the hypnogic and hypoponic state. You know, before you just as you're waking up and just as you're going to sleep. So just as he's going to sleep, he goes into this this uh, area where you tap into this this consciousness field, and that's where a lot of downloads come. As you wake up or as you're uh, going to sleep, you you get these downloads. So he was using this. So his as he was going to sleep, his hand would relax, the two balls would fall out of his hand, and and go into the and, and go into this bowl and wake him up. And then he would immediately write down what was in his head. Then he'd take the two still balls, put them back in his hand, and we'd do this over and over again. And he would go through this this state just before you go to sleep and try to pick up these these inspirations. So he had kind of a, a system worked out. Yeah, he, he did a little technique. He, so people he, can he do this. Get that going, yeah. Yeah. Did yeah. you run across any other um, examples of people doing those kinds of things, like say musicians that would do that to sort of enhance their their creative mindset or, you know, encourage a download, I guess you could say? Um, well, it, like with you, were you doing anything – different or in particular that when you had your downloads or or was it just the circumstances you think that created it? Um, The only thing I would do is um, I seem to be able to uh, know when it was coming and I would always have a piece of paper. So that you found like, like Yoko Ono said, John Lennon always had a, um, you know, a, a, a piece of paper beside the bed. Uh, they had a tape recorder. Most, a lot of musicians have a tape recorder beside the bed, and that's where satisfaction comes from. The riff and the main riff and satisfaction mm-hmm. came from, uh, you know, whoever it was, Richards or whatever. Keith Richards, uh, yeah. Yeah, in 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 Florida, where he has the tape recorder, and he wakes up in the morning, and the tape recorder's at the end, and he suddenly realizes like something must have happened, and uh, so he plays the tape back. And sure enough, in the middle of the night, he he wakes up, and he's got the the riff for satisfaction. He sings it into the tape recorder, and then he goes back to sleep. And you can hear him on the tape recorder sleeping or snoring. <laughs> and he he doesn't. He, if it weren't for the tape recorder, me at the end, he never would have realized this. So yeah, I had used to keep paper around, and and once you sort of get the feeling, you know what the feeling is. You the feeling is coming. Then I could I could do this, and I knew enough to write it down. So when I had this one in 2014, it's kind of, it was kind of cold. It was not winter, but it was, it was kind of cold. And I remember walking down the street and it started to come and I go, you got to write this down. Or sometimes in the middle of the night, I'll, I'll have a, um, it comes with me. It actually sometimes comes like with a stomachache where you're sitting there and you wake up and you start got a stomachache and your head is just flooded with stuff. And all these ideas are going around and you're going like, Oh man, I'm never going to sleep again. And then, and then I realized that you got to get up and you got to write all this crap down. And soon, even though it's just disjointed thoughts, you write all these thoughts down and then mm-hmm. it sort of clears your mind. You can go back to sleep again. And that's when I found that I, I, the more I wrote the stuff down, the more I was able to pick up these downloads, the more I was able to do them. It's almost like the same thing with dreams. Like people say, you can't remember your dreams. And I said the same thing. Oh, you can't remember your dreams. And I was trying to do lucid dreaming because lucid dreaming is one of the most powerful things you can do. If you can suddenly realize you're dreaming, you can ask questions, you can do all sorts of stuff in the lucid dream and you can get all sorts of answers. You can tap in because you're basically in contact with higher self at that point. So I was trying to practice this lucid dreaming thing. And the first thing you're supposed to do is you're supposed to remember your dreams. So 
I would I would do this little thing where I would uh, wake up and then I would get out of bed, even though I hated, you know, you get out of bed, you write it down. And I got to the point where I was remembering seven dreams a night. And they were all this stupid stuff, and I could never do the lucid dreaming. So I gave up on it, and now I'm back to not remembering my dreams at all. But you can't actually do it. If you go through the technique and you actually force yourself to get out of bed and write it down, uh, you can remember your dreams. Because I was, I was shocked that I was, you know, and I could go right back to sleep again. I would, you know, what I would do is I'd drink lots of water. So I'd have to go to bed, you know, I have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. And that's what would happen is I'd have to go to the bathroom. I'd wake up and then I would, this thing would be in your head. And then you'd know that before you move a finger, that's what they say. Like with, um, with this thing is if you even move a finger, you start to activate the left brain. The left brain starts to come back online. It realizes, oh, the body's awake. We got to get going here. And it, it, it shuts the channel. So, you know how, when you, you get a dream and you say, oh, I got to remember this dream and you get up and you start and you you start to move and the dream is like water going down a toilet. It's just down that goes and you're trying to mm-hmm. stop it and it goes. That's the left brain coming back online. Is in my opinion. It's coming back on. It's shutting the channel. The channel is open and what you have to do is when you have remembering the dreams or the music or whatever it is, is when you're in bed and it's there, it's like, oh, it's very clear. I'm going to remember this. You have to get ready go through the whole scenario of whatever it is that you that's in your head and then you get up as fast as you can and write it as fast as you can because it's going to disappear very fast. So there are techniques to to sort of um, make the system a little bit better where you you can learn to do it and the more you do it the 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 more you know what the feeling is and you can actually make it come on. That's that's my experience. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's interesting that um, it it always seems like with all these people there's there's some connection to another reality or another source or you know maybe maybe it's where we all come from that we sort of can go back to that for for a short time or something i know um what i thought was strange was that all four of the beatles seem to have varying degrees of either ufo experience i don't know about george harrison you didn't talk to talk about him as much as the other three i know mccartney and lennon who were <clears throat> they seem to have a, some kind of connection when you know with the two of them together they just they seem to have some an amazing synchronicity that they could create these songs and the same with Ringo Starr i know he had a he had a ufo connection too so do you think they were put, do you think they were put together um yeah it, it, it seems it, almost too much that it would be a a coincidence that the four of these guys would come together and and create this incredible music um oh, yeah, what, yeah. what's your what's your thinking on that Oh yeah, I think there are there are um, definitely that's the whole thing about multiple lives. If multiple lives, then you're looking at these things where if you've ever studied um, Dr. Michael Newton, who did the seven thousand regressions on life between life stuff, where uh, before you were born, according to what his people told him, was you sit there and you see all these connections. I'm going to connect with this person, connect with that person. We have to do this. I have to remember this, and mm-hmm. so you have these these um, these. Um, uh, connections like the Moody Blues is an example. So you have the Moody Blues who are all they're all abducted. They're all these into really weird stuff, and then uh, one of them leaves. I guess maybe it's Pinder leaves, and they bring on this um, Mraz guy. And if you listen to Mraz, I mean, you talk about UFOs. I mean, this guy's like way, way more UFO stuff than than the Moody Blues. And 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 you know, he's he's the guy that talked about the experience in 1973. 
he's in Brazil and uh, up on there practicing up on a hill or a mountain or something like that. And he comes out two o'clock in the morning or whatever. And he sees a fleet of UFOs, a freeway of UFOs, uh, red UFOs going through the sky and entire thousands of them, he said. And so you get that kind of stuff where he has piles and piles. And he's, he wrote uh, an entire album. I don't know if it's out yet, but he was going to write an entire album on UFO music. So he gets he replaces one of the Moody Blues guys, comes into the band, and he's I mean crazier UFO guy than any of the Moody Blues guys. So you see these connections where yeah, it does appear that there is. Uh, it's the whole idea is the is the is the world random. Or is it pattern? Because we think it's all—it's all accident. It's all, uh, you know, just bizarre uh, accidents that are happening, and and there's no meaning to anything. Uh, I just had a an experience this weekend. There's, um, I'm in Manitoba, so there's the University of Manitoba where I actually worked for, for you know four decades, where um, they have a collection of uh, paranormal material, and um, they had a conference there last weekend. And I was talking to some of the people at the conference, and um, they um, I lost my train of thought. They, oh no, is the the one woman she works with um, um, Dale Graff. I don't know who you know Dale Graff is. In mm-hmm. the remote in the remote viewing program, there was actually two parts of the remote viewing program. There's the SRI stuff that was run at Stanford University by Hal Putoff and Ingo Swan, and then there was the other part, which was run at Ray Patterson Air Force Base. And that was run by Dale Graff. So Dale Graff is running the remote viewing program for the for the military, whereas uh, Putoff is running it for the CIA. And Dale Graff had he was famous for uh, the very famous one where the U.S. Air, the U.S. government CIA recovers this Russian spy plane through remote viewing. And Jimmy Carter talks about this as being the most ma- magnificent thing he ever saw as president. And so anyway, Dale Graff, they're doing this experiment now where um, they have this girl who I had dinner with and we talked extensively about the stuff she's doing. She's sort of the remote viewer and she's like 75% accurate. And what they're doing is they are looking at the future. So they're looking at uh, the what, what picture will appear, what Associated Press picture will appear on the newspaper in a certain newspaper three days from now. And so the picture has not even been taken yet. The story has not been done. The picture will be taken the day after. Then they'll have a, an editorial day. And then they'll put the, the, the picture in the, the newspaper. So three days before, they're, they're trying to figure out which, what, what's the picture going to be on this newspaper. And she's very, very accurate. And now they're going to move out to five days, five days in the future, see if they can pick off the, the, whatever photograph is going to appear five days in the future. And uh, so you look at that kind of stuff, and I think she said 75% basically accurate in terms of the basic picture uh that shows it's not a random universe that shows uh the whole idea of random causation evolution being random and it's all accident stuff may actually total nonsense because if you can read the future there's nothing accidental about anything i mean it's almost like uh the whole idea that there's no free will that it's all absolutely planned that you know it's 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 happening according to some predetermined plan and this random idea and that's one of the things i these download things is it random or is it pattern is it uh, the rupert sheldrake talked about uh the the um the field 
the morphogenetic field is is the universe mm -hmm. learning is it a field where it's learning and it's picking up stuff or is it just random accident and i would say the more you look at it the more it's absolutely patterned that that it's a universe it learns and it remembers and it just duplicates itself so cells duplicate themselves and they duplicate themselves and it's following a pattern there's nothing random about anything so you have to ask yourself, with with the ability you were talking about for somebody to kind of reach into the future, um, from the present, are they impacting the future, or you know, is there some kind of a, a give and take sort of? I guess can can in other words, can you uh, rather than say seeing into the future per se as to something that you know is going to happen that's set in stone, but you know, is somebody in the present that can reach into the future impacting that? that particular reality, I guess. Yeah, well, that, I think that's what they have to determine yet. A lot of the remote viewing people seem to indicate that the, the past, the future is impacting the present. That's going the other way around. No, I'm, I'm oh, really, okay. It, okay. it gets really, I mean, it gets really confusing because you would yeah, think it's that, complicated. that yeah. you have this thing with the timelines, <clears throat> that you have different timelines and that based upon your decision, you go on a different timeline, that there's all these various timelines, which would indicate that we're influencing the future. The Michael Newton thing uh, does seem to be the idea that uh, the major things are sort of picked off, that the certain people that you, um, you, you see a person and you know you're supposed to connect with that person, and if you don't make the connection, then there's a, another thing, another uh, event will take place that you, you can make these choices. So uh, I would, right now, I would just say, just guessing is that the future is a, a lot less uh, random uh, than you think it is that there are events so these are the things with synchronicity where you have these very bizarre synchronicities uh, that that can't possibly be happening by random accident like this podcast like, a, yeah. like a, one of the things that I mean I'm sorry I actually have like hardly any voice at all and I've been like trying really hard to um, just let you guys just talk. But one of the things that I, I do have to chime in here and say is that I've been a huge fan of the Moody Blues since 84, 85. And there were, and I was a latecomer. Yeah, I'm late. Well, yeah. And, and the thing is, is there was something about the Moody Blues that I just like connected with in the mid 80s. And it turns out that my father, who I hadn't seen in in quite a few years, um, uh, he was a huge Moody Blues fan, and he and I, I took him to his first Moody Blues concert, if you can believe it or not. And there is this sort of like this weird connection, because in the album, Every Good Boy Deserves Favor, the last two songs, especially the last song, it's the one that you're talking about, the download, talking about how um, maybe they'll come to us and help us find a way in the lyrics to that there is something about the background uh, music and noise in that. And it does get you into that, like that zone, that sort of like that thing where Timothy Leary talked about opening up your mind to another realm. There's something about that song that does exactly that. Um, now, one of the things I have to sort of ask is that there are so many of us who like tune in to these certain bands is like, is there something about them that's calling out to us? Is there something about their music, like their deep cuts? If it wasn't for the fact that I was hooked on the Moody Blues because of this one song, I never would have heard this deep cut, these deep cuts on these albums that seemed to like talking like almost directly to me. 
in a, in, a, in a way. Is there some way or some fashion that the bands and through their music are calling out to the fans and say, you have to listen to these deep tracks? I know it sounds crazy, but I have to ask. Yeah, oh, I would say, yeah. I mean, there there is, that's the thing, is the world is much more complex than... Uh, people are giving it credit for. I, I absolutely believe, yeah, that that um, it, it's sort of like your life is interconnected with their life, in terms of um, like even with me. I mean, the, the idea that that Neil Young would grow up in Winnipeg, and that would sort of uh, because he wrote this song years later would trigger me to write uh, two books on music. And I, I know my father. My father's dead now. My father would absolutely die laughing if he knew his kid had written a book on music i mean i was just absolutely the last person in the world and yet i uh, that it's almost like this thing with the uh where i'm looking at the events in my life and i basically say almost nothing in my ufo career uh, i planned i mean i didn't plan to see the ufo i only went out because other people were seeing it i had this bizarre music thing where i got dragged down that rabbit hole and if it hadn't been for the neil young i never would have got dragged down that rabbit hole i there's not a chance i would have touched that the, the music story because I knew nothing about it and didn't care about it. And, uh, you know, then the, the download experience, uh, I didn't plan that. And then I have this latest experience that last August where I get another message from an alien. And I knew enough then uh, to say to the girl who was on the cell phone was getting this message is get the message, get exactly what is this message. I knew enough to say this sounds very stupid, but let's play the game and let's uh, make sure we've got it exactly right. So um, you see these synchronicity things happening and you just have to go along with it and and sort of assume that there's some sort of reason that it's, it's triggering or just the music triggers a certain emotion which tr- uh, changes uh, a mindset in society. So you see the, the 1960s stuff with the, with the Beatles and stuff like that where it sort of... Changed an entire generation to not want to go to war, to uh, do peace, uh, to do all this kind of stuff. That it, it it changed everything for you know, and it, it, it whether it was the lyrics or whether it was the 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 the, the, uh, the tempo or whatever it was, it changed an entire generation, not just single people. Well, I, I think that's uh, what's really important about your book, Grant, is that. It's about really, ostensibly, it's about music and musicians, but it's really about more than that. It's it's really about consciousness and and how our consciousness is impacted in ways that um, we may not even really be aware of. You know, we listen to music and we say, "Oh yeah, that's nice, that sounds good," um, but there's really something else happening there. There's you know, there's there's something going on, yeah. um, and I think that's what people really. You know, people that read your book, they should know that. They sh- it's something that they need to know. It's 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 something they need to learn. I think, and and as you point out in the book, that we're you know we're here to learn. We're here to to learn lessons that, for whatever reason, our our souls need that lesson. Um, which is which is why I think your book um, is is something that everybody really should read. Like you said, you're not even really into music that much, but you wrote this whole book about the experience and, and all these things that musicians have because it's really about raising your consciousness yeah in in my estimation anyway yeah it's, it's a deeper thing <clears throat> I, I just remembered this story and this gives you an idea of the how bizarre this whole thing gets in terms of synchronicity like is this thing planned and this is mm-hmm. a story i was tell, telling before and i forgot the name now i I've suddenly remember what the name is so bono is is in london england he's playing at wembley stadium 
and he can't sleep. Uh, a lot of people get this before a lecture or before an event or whatever. He can't sleep. So he's up in the middle of the night and he's watching a movie called uh, Blue Velvet. And in there, there's a... That's a bizarre movie. <laughs> yeah, there's a song by Roy Orbison called In Dreams. And Roy Orbison gets this song in a dream. It's called In Dreams. And oh, yeah. in, the yeah. in the movie, he's singing... Roy Orbison actually singing the song. So Bono is watching this. He's got this thing looped. So he's watching this tape over and over again as the night goes on. He's, he's watching this thing and this song comes on. And finally, late in the morning, Bono falls asleep. And he wakes up with a, a, a song in his head that sounds like it was written by Roy Orbison. And he's just, he's just fascinated. So he goes to Wembley Stadium and at the, they're doing the, the checks or whatever. And he's telling these other guys, he's saying, man, I got this song last night. And it's like, it's just like for Roy Orbison. And I was watching this movie with Roy Orbison with this song in there and stuff. And he plays it for them. And they said, ah, it sounds pretty good. You should, you should produce this song. So um, he plays the concert. And then he's um, got the song at the end of the concert, and he's in the, the, the room, in the dressing room, and he's trying to get this song, uh, and it's called Mystery Woman. And he's trying to put this song together, and all of a sudden there's this knock on the door, and it's security, his bono security. And they say, uh, Roy Arbison is here today. He's at the concert, and he wants to talk to you. And he goes, really? <laughs> it's like Roy Orbison's here. And he's from America. He's, come to, he's at the concert. That's pretty amazing. So Roy Arbison comes in, and Roy Arbison says, that was fantastic. You guys were absolutely fantastic. He said, you know, I'd like to play with you guys sometimes. Do you have a, do you have to have a song I could do? And Roy Orbison, and of course, Bono says, well, yeah, I kind of got one this morning. And so <laughs> he, Roy Orbison sings this song that was written by Bono, and it goes number two in Great Britain, number five in the U.S. And so you have this bizarre synchronicity. Now, tell me that's an accident where, you know, they have yeah. these bizarre synchronicities of two dreams. No way, to, no way yeah. to explain that. Yeah, <laughs> just, just something at work. You know. Yeah, just so bizarre. So, and and I have lots of these stories. In, in the second book, I have the the story, and I don't know if you've heard this one. It's it's uh, it's this thing with the concert thing, where you, you know, I because what happened was as soon as you bring up rock stars, then people say, oh, it's the devil, it's the it's the drugs, it's all this kind of stuff, and like that. And so my, as I said, my family was very musical. My mother was a church organist for forty years. My sisters played in a religious group, and they toured around all over the place and stuff like that. My father built theater organs, liked his jazz. He'd listen to jazz all day long and stuff like that. So I came from this musical family, and so what I said is, okay, well, if 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 it's uh, the devil or if it's uh, you know, uh, drugs. Well, let's go back and look at all the music that my mother plays, you know, Bach and Handel and all this kind of stuff, church music and stuff like that. It was the same story. It's identical. There's no difference. Instead of saying it's coming from aliens, they were saying it was coming from God. And the, the prime example was this one with, with Beethoven, where some guy contacts Beethoven about some violin piece inside one of the symphonies and he said this was absolutely terrible this was absolutely unplayable and i i just it was a horrible uh part of the the symphony or whatever and beethoven writes him back and says do you realize i got that from god i was inspired by god and while i was talking to him do you think i had time to worry about your little violin symphony part and it's like it's just it's the same story so you 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 get this this thing where it's it, it's you're tapping into this this sort of higher thing. So when it comes to symphonies, I the one of if I do another music book, I'm going to put this one. And this is this bizarre, bizarre story told about this this guy. It's told on National Public Radio interviews this guy, and he produces what's called the Angeli Symphony, and uh, he has an experience where. Um, 
his son is is born. His son's name is Ben, and he dies at birth. And uh, so they bury him. They have the funeral, and the night of the the night of the funeral after the funeral, uh, this guy has this dream. And in the dream, uh, he gets contacted by angels or whoever was was talking to him and said, sometimes when these kind of things happen, we leave the person with a gift. And suddenly they start playing this symphony for this guy. And it's, it's been played. It's called the Angeli Symphony. And this guy is like me. No interest in music. Never played a musical instrument, whatever. And he realizes he has to compose this symphony. And he has no background in music. So he tells his wife, he says, you know, in six months, I'm going to London. I'm going to compose this symphony and I was given this and, and I have to do this and I remember every note and this sort of stuff and his wife thought he was joking six months later he leaves and he gets in the car and he drives to London, England and his wife divorces him and uh, he goes to London and he said, you know, he has this command, he's got to do this and he parks in a parking lot and he sits there and he says, I wait for, the, for my instructions and nothing happens and he waits and he waits and waits and nothing happens and he ends up homeless and he's in this homeless shelter and he manages to buy a guitar and he starts playing picking away on this guitar trying to figure out what the notes are he remembers the symphony and this is now like a year or two since it happened and he's trying to figure out the symphony and he meets some jazz guy who helps him sort of put this thing together and sort of get the melody together and there's actually on the internet you can actually see him with this guy and and the guy's playing on the on the piano he's going no it doesn't go like that and he's no it goes like this and he's, he's sort of humming the thing and the guy's trying to put it together they get this whole thing together and then he decides he wants to learn and fulfill our harmonic orchestra to play this symphony and they, they, he goes and the contact, he says, the, says to him, you can't do this. You need like a million pounds to do this. I mean, you can't just walk into the, they're not going to do this. So he said, oh, okay. And he walks away. And for 15 years, he gathers a million pounds. And he comes back with his million pounds and says, okay, I've got the million pounds. Now let's do the symphony. And this, this whole story takes like 20 years. And in the end, the end of the story, to make it long story short, the London Philharmonic Orchestra actually plays this song. He raises way over a million pounds for this thing. They play this one time, and they say it was the only time the London Philharmonic Orchestra actually stood up and applauded the guy who had composed it, because this guy had had the whole song, all the, the notes, and you can actually hear it on the on the internet. It's called the Angeli Symphony, and he then he sends it to his wife, and who had long since divorced him, and he was very scared. He sent her the symphony, and she contacted him back, and she said, "I've listened listened to your symphony." I had the windows open and I played it at full blast and it is absolutely beautiful. And when you hear it, it is an absolutely beautiful symphony that this guy said he got in a dream and he had no musical background. Wow. What's this guy's name? Um, it escapes, but, but if you just go, it. it's Angeli, A-N-G-E-L-I, symphony, and just go to National Public Radio, put Angeli Symphony radio uh -huh. and and the interview will pop up that was done by national public radio it's a fascinating interview and uh the, the stories i guess will, will become kind of is kind of becoming famous now but i have that one and i have the other one that that when you see the the power of the human mind there's a guy who plays honky-tonk music in the united states and he's not he'll be in the next book if i do another book and he's the guy that 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 told um the guy, the the woman who runs the uh, the neurology lab at Penn State University, uh, I think I I can do two symphonies. I can listen to two symphonies every day. I listen to two symphonies in my head at the same time, and they go, "No, you can't." I mean, come on, you can't do that. And and he said, "Yeah, I can do that." And she said, "Well, can you do three symphonies?" And he goes, mm, "Well, I think I could do four. So they put him in an MRI machine, 
and I believe he's also on National Public Radio. The interview with him, you put him in a in a in a um, uh, an MRI machine at Penn State University, and they have a um, a, a conductor from the from the uh, Hartford Symphony Orchestra as the as a control, and that guy gets wiped out. He he can't do any of this kind of stuff. But they put the guy in this thing, and they say, okay. Start symphony number one, and, they, and all these symphonies are different. One's a Bach, one's Handel, all these different symphonies. Okay, start symphony number one, and then 30 seconds later, okay, start symphony number two in your head. Okay, and then a minute later, start symphony number three, and they start symphony number four. And then they let it run for five minutes, and they say, okay, stop. Okay, where are you in symphony number one? And the guy is dead on to the note in all four symphonies. He has all four symphonies. So they ask him, well, how are you doing this? I mean, what's going on here? And he said, well, in my mind, I can see these, these symphony orchestras. And I, can, I can't see their faces, but I can, I can see the people, clearly all the different things. And there's two of them sitting on the, on the two symphonies on the stage. And then in behind, there's a third symphony. And, and then underneath the floor, there's a hole in the floor. And down below the, the floor, the, there's another symphony down there. And he said, not only can he listen to all four symphonies, he can actually like levitate. He can float up, go over one of the symphonies, go down as the, all these symphonies are playing and go down to one particular instrument in the symphony and listen to that person play the, the symphony orchestra. And he's proved in an MRI machine. They actually have him in the MRI machine where he's talking, where she's asking, where are you in the symphony, where they actually play this, where this test that they did. And you see that kind of stuff where this guy can actually go to four different symphonies uh, for all the different players and stuff like that and record, listen to four symphonies at a time in your head. That shows you the capability of the human mind that we, we haven't even begun to touch the what we're ab ab capable of doing. Hmm. That guy's definitely got some kind of special wiring going on there to be able to do that. That's <laughs> that's pretty amazing. Um, <clears throat> one, one other thing I wanted to ask you, Grant, what do you... What do you think the real connection between UFOs and music is? I, I know you, you pointed out numerous instances where where UFOs have appeared at concerts. Like I know Bruce Springsteen had a concert in Philadelphia where people, almost everybody at the concert saw these UFOs. What, what do you think is going on with that? Do you think there's some message that is in that? or? Um... Well, no, but I think it's, it all comes down to this this right brain, left brain thing that, that all – musicians are left brain or right brain creative people right, and right. so the same thing is with experiences that's what, what roger lear said what's the thing with common that's all with the, all experiences he said they're all right brain creative people so whether you get that as a choice coming into this world to be uh creative right brained that's where the message is you you can't deliver mm -hmm. a message through a left brain rational analytical person these are skeptical scientific people or whatever where you know we're not going to believe any of this kind of stuff we're in this world this physical world you know it's rape pillage kill and steal we need to make money it's it's that mm -hmm. kind of mentality so if you're an uh, uh, an alien or a, an angel or a spiritual being or somebody and you want to interact with the world and you want to put a message through you have to do it through these uh, people who are right brain that's where the message you're not going to get it through that's why aliens abduct young children because once you're 20 years old you're total waste of time because you got so much garbage in your head mm -hmm. that you you, you would need you know big huge rubber boots and a shovel to dig down deep enough to put a, an idea in there you need the mind before it's it's when it's open as a child before it's, before it's tainted 
before it's tainted, tainted. By, by life, yeah. And so that's when you're you're putting these messages, and that's when I do the inspired book. So you see the inspired book. I say it's all the same thing. So it's a, a person with a head injury. The left brain is shut down. They're getting messages. They're getting. They're able to do mathematical calculations, calendar calculations. They're able to like the the, the famous Rain Man, twelve thousand books, memorize twelve thousand books, and you, you can go to any book on any page, and he can tell you what's on that page and and read it word for word. That kind of stuff. That once you shut that left brain down and whether it's you can do it through meditation you can do it through uh hypnosis you can do all these kind of techniques lucid dreaming lucid dreaming is again it's you're in the dream world that's why a lot of uh, abduction experiences come in the middle of the night because you're in that state where your left brain is basically shut down you're in the in the right brain you're in the dream world and so it's it's a matter of being in the state it's not uh, necessarily the person you may have agreed to come in as a musician or as a poet or so all these people are bringing in messages from the other side so that's what you need is you need the proper person to get the message and musicians are the proper people because they're in that right brain creative state Mm -hmm. interesting so grant Uh, oh uh, go ahead eric do you do you have some time for some ufo questions that i've been itching to ask you yeah go ahead sure uh right off the bat here there's been a lot of stories um walt and i have been sort of covering them in uh, previous episodes, and I think we even touched upon this in a, in the episode that we had with you earlier. Um, one of the news stories that uh, we just can't seem to get past is that the Pentagon has finally admitted that they actually have had sort of like an X-Files-like program where they have been investigating a lot of these supernatural things. And the obvious question to to you would be, is this one giant leap closer towards disclosure? And wh- and what are they doing with all these trillions of dollars that they've apparently lost? Okay, uh, first things first. The the Pentagon has not admitted that they're running a program. They have told the New York Times, Washington Post, Politico that they have. They've given uh, two anonymous sources. Uh, that have, have been confirmed inside the Pentagon. When the UFO community goes to get the records and the videos, they say, we did not release any videos. Uh, there are no records. So what has happened is this is uh, not disclosure. What I'm saying, this is uh, confirmation. That what they have done is what they should have done in 1947 is just confirmed that there's a phenomena. And this was in an interview that Bob Bigelow did in 2013. Bob Bigelow was asked, and he's the guy that wrote that, was the contractor for this ATIP program. Uh, he was asked, are you in favor of disclosure? And this is after the program. He's already run the program, had all the material, and he said, no, I'm not in favor of disclosure. We need confirmation. We need to uh, tell the American people that UFOs exist and stop right there. And that's exactly what they did in December. They went through the New York Times. They didn't go through the UFO community. They went through the New York Times, Washington Post. They got uh, the so the the reporters and and the guy that wrote the Washington Post thing had two Pulitzer prizes. The guy that wrote the New York Times had one Pulitzer prize. So these are not low level guys, and they've got a lot of contacts. They're national security reporters. They've got these contacts inside the Pentagon. So they go and off the record, they get two sources that say yes. Off the record, yes, this this is all for real. And so they run with the story. And so the story gets out there, and we can't confirm it in the UFO community. But the, So now what's happened is they've got the, the all the major media that never did UFO stories, that always laughed at the UFO stories, who now um, are in a situation where 
uh, they are putting out the story and they'll say, like CNN will say, okay, the, the, the Pentagon has just released another UFO video. And yet when you go to, as a, a, to do an FOIA, they'll say, no, no, we didn't release any videos. No, no, not, nothing like that. So what they're doing is this acclimatization thing where they're gradually leaking this stuff out. And what Bigelow said is first you do confirmation, which is what they did in December. Then later on, you go and you start talking about other stuff. But you don't mention the word alien. Don't you mention the word UFO, all that kind of stuff. And that's what you see they're doing. They're saying, we're just saying it's, uh, it's something mysterious. Uh, we're not saying that there's aliens here. So it's this program that, that I say they've been doing. When I wrote Managing Magic, I say they've been doing this for 70 years. This is this is just the latest version of, of the program. They did this with Bill Moore. They did this with UFO Cover-Up Live in 1988. They've done this over and over again, that they're gradually leaking the story and yet controlling the story. Because if you want to disclose, like I say, there's three options. Either you're going to disclose, which means you stand the president up and tell everybody what's going on. So they're not disclosing because they have not done that. And I don't think they intend to do that. And they're not covering up because if you want to cover up, I'm from Canada and the Canadians don't talk about it. And I don't know what the Canadians are doing. I don't know if the Canadians are even involved in UFOs. If you want to cover the thing up, you would just shut up and quit talking about it. So they're not covering up and they're not disclosing. They're doing something in between. They're doing this gradual sort of leak the stuff out. And um, that, that's what they did in, in December. And now you're going to see uh, other little bits and pieces that will be leaked out. What I say the problem is, is there's a second level of secrecy. And if, if you've known Tom DeLong has sort of taken a shot at me that, you know, I'm messing stuff up, that I'm getting stuff wrong. And I basically say, and I will say again, I'm at Congress, I'm going to say it at Congress, is that um, if all these people go on the record under oath and tell their stories, and that includes the government and the to the stars people. And uh, I get to qu ask all the questions under oath. And when I see all the documents, I will beg for forgiveness and I will change all the things I got wrong. But until we stop all these levels of secrecy, whether it's to the stars secrecy uh, or whether it's the government secrecy, I'm going to be forced to guess. And yes, I will admit that at times I'm going to speculate on what I think is going on. I have no choice because um, you have the government secrecy and now you've got to the stars and, and Bob Bigelow secrecy and they're using it for different reasons. The government is using it to create weapons and to create defense systems and all this kind of stuff. And and uh, Bob Bigelow and uh, Tom DeLong are using it for money. It's like proprietary information. We now have it. We're going to make money off this. We're going to sell books. We're going to uh, develop space systems or whatever they're doing to make money. So you have this second level of secrecy now that 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 is entered. It's like MJ-12-1 and MJ-12-2. So uh, I think some of these people are, are put out there, too, to kind of create a a smokescreen or disinformation or whatever you want to call it. Um, so we don't really ever see the actual actual ball. You know, you can't keep your eye on the ball because you don't know where it is. That, that That's what it seems like to me anyway. So you, you never know who's doing what, you know. Um, <clears throat> some I've heard it suggested that Tom DeLong is one of those people that's sort of put out there to kind of divert everybody's attention in a way. I, I, I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, I, I don't believe, I, I say it's the same thing. When I wrote Managing Magic, what I say it is, mm. it's it's 14 magicians, and I name them, they're yes. high right. CIA people, and mm. five uh, messiahs. And they're using me as well. So what they do is, um, they put, what I'm saying they're doing is they're taking information, and Tom DeLong has even confirmed this. Um, they're taking information, 
and they're surrounding it with disinformation. And they're putting it out. So they'll put out a story um, about Area 51 is the prime example. So you put out, uh, you, you take Bob Lazar, and they knew in the second interview, the first question in the second interview to Bob Lazar was, what's your relationship to John Lear? And what do you think about John Lear? So they knew before they put him on Area 51 base that he knew John Lear. And John Lear was this sort of, uh, you know, very truthful guy, will tell the truth, mm-hmm. but he has some really, really weird ideas. Yeah. And so that's oh, yeah. what you yeah. want, is is if you want the story to be t- carried out there, you, you 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 either going to disclose so you stand the president if you want the story out clean you stand the president out you have the news conference you show the bodies the crafts stuff like that if you want the story and want to control the story you put it out so nobody knows what's real what's not real so that's why you give it to Tom DeLong that's why you might leak stuff to me and to other people is it's it's not really going to get out there uh, positively or with with the Area 51 story so Bob Lazar has these two bad degrees he claims he's got these two master's degrees and he probably doesn't have the two master's degrees and they know so we let him in at the second day they show him 125 documents you don't do that in a, in a need to know program you don't so they give him these 125 documents they tell him how the program works and of course what does he do exactly what they predicted he would do he goes running back the first day to john lear and he says to john lear i was up at the base and he said they've got it and he and then john says well is it ours or theirs and he said it's theirs. And he said, well, what they, What are you doing? You know they're going to be watching you. What are you doing talking to me? Get out of here. Come back in six months and tell me what's going on. Get out of my house. You know they're going to be watching you. And that's exactly what happened. They wanted, they wanted Lear to, to carry the story. So Bob Lazar goes and tells Lear the story. They've got this crafts at Area 51. There's this live alien and all this kind of stuff. But John Lear's running around telling people. But nobody believes it because like, oh, John Lear. John Lear's crazy. You don't listen to John Lear. I mean, who's going to listen to John Lear? Mm-hmm. And what happens is it backfires. So in the, the spring of 1989, George Knapp is missing a guest on one of his shows. And he needs a guest. <laughs> so he phones up John Lear and he says, you know, you got that guy. You, you keep telling me about this guy that worked Area 51 that got fired for his UFO stuff. I need a guest tonight. Put him on my show. So they put him on the show, and now it's no longer crazy John Lear telling the story. Now it's Emmy Award-winning George Knapp telling the story, and that thing goes viral. And suddenly, everybody's descending on the base, and all you got crews from around the world, and it sort of gets out of control. So that's what they're doing. They'll give it to witnesses who have, you know questionable background so you give it to tom DeLong. he's got some really questionable songs he sang he's kind of this crazy guy he was when he went to lockheed skunk works when he first started they said well what about this conspiracy website you're running what's this all about and he was running this thing i can't remember what it was called 2012 he had this conspiracy website which was very leading edge crazy conspiracy stuff and he was putting it out so that's exactly what you want you want this guy who has these very you know crazy rock star guy who's you know into drugs and into uh you know uh conspiracies and you want him to carry the message if you want the message clean you give it to the president if you want it to be out there and sort of bounce around where nobody really knows what to believe and what not to believe you give it to tom DeLong, you give it to john lear you give it to bob lazar and you let it bounce around because that's what they want to do they want the story out but they don't want anybody to be able to confirm it if they wanted you to confirm it they'd put the president or the CIA director out there. They don't want you to confirm it. They just want you to sort of know we possibly have uh, crafts at Area 51. We have the, we had this ATIP program. We have a, we had a live alien at Area 51. They want you to know this kind of stuff, but they don't want anybody to be able to confirm the story. Interesting. And, and, 
And what they're doing is that they're basically just acclimatizing the people. That's why they went to the New York Times and the Washington Post and political rather than coming to the UFO community. They went to them because they're, it's, like a, it's like an election. So if you're running for president in the United States, you're not going to go for the Democrats because they're all going to vote for the Democrats. You're not going to go for the Republicans. They're all going to vote for their guy. They're, they're voting Republican. If you want to get the thing, what you do is you go for the swing voters, the people who are undecided. And that's what they've done with this disclosure thing, this acclimatization thing in December, is you're going after the swing voters. So you have 50% of the people in the American public, they really don't know, really don't care. Well, I heard these stories about UFOs. I really don't know if it's real or whatever. And suddenly the New York Times does a story and suddenly so when the new york times does a story then it's like oh now we can believe it it's for real and i can almost guarantee you they swung the polls by 10 percent. there's 10 percent more people now before that than before december who actually believe yeah the, the UFO thing's real yeah the government's doing this that's what they're doing is they're shifting the consciousness of the public from uh 50 to 40 percent to 30 percent they want it to in a position where when if it does break then everybody's sort of familiar with it. And Kit Green, who is used to run the weird desk at the CIA, the, the ran the UFO stuff from 69 to 83 or 85, he was in an interview that was, he was asked, well, w w you know, what's going on in, about Serpo? And he said, well, Serpo, don't throw Serpo out. It's, it, there's, there's classified material in there. There's some of that stuff is true. And the guy's going, what, what are you talking about? What do you mean? And he's saying, well, what would you do if you had to run this, run this story? And so Kit Green basically says, well, you'd put out all these crazy stories. And, you'd, you know, like the, 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 uh, you know, the uh, reptilians are eating your kids and stuff like that. And you put all this stuff out. And then when the story breaks, it's simply, oh, there's extraterrestrials visiting the earth. And you go, what, what? They're not eating our kids? No, then I'd eaten the kids. And they go, well, what's the big deal then? So you, you're doing this sort of manipulating the, po the population's uh, consciousness to get them ready because you don't want them back in 1947 where they don't know what's going on. You want them to basically know, yeah, we've, we, there are these UFOs and uh, there, there was a live alien and there's been some crashes. But you don't, you don't want people to have uh, confirmable type of material. You want it to sort of bounce around, almost like fiction. You're, you're putting it through fiction. You're telling the story through fiction, so nobody really knows who the real characters were, what the real dates were. You're just fictionalizing the story and putting it out there. So it's kind of like being tenderized. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For the, for the, We're being for the desensitized eventual, um, and tenderized. What it, what, and, what it, whatever the reveal is going to eventually be, or if it is. But you do so. think that they're getting us ready for that, though. You think that they're actually going to just slowly, sort of like, it's it's not a deluge. It's just a little a little trickle, a little like a drop here and there, just a little bit yep. here and a little bit there. And it's like they take three steps forward and two steps back. And and I and th there's so many theories out there as to like, are they using the media? Are they using television and movies and books to sort of like get us used to the idea? That there yeah, are absolutely. aliens out there. I mean, that's how they're doing it. Absolutely, that's where Chase Brandon, uh, Chase Brandon was the CIA uh, representative for Hollywood from '95 till 2005. Uh, he wrote the book called *The Christos Conundrum* about how the CIA handled the Roswell crash, uh, and it, he said it was reviewed uh, between, depending who you listen to, who interviewed him, between two and eight times by the CIA. So they said, change this, change that. 
And uh, so it's basically the story uh, how how it was done. And he said quite clearly, he said, if you want if you want a good story, read my book. If you want to learn something, read between the lines. And that's how you do it. I mean, if you want if you save the world from nuclear catastrophe or whatever, and you want the story for your grandkids, they say, sure, you can tell the story. Just change the dates, change the names, whatever, and you can tell this fictionalized story. And we put it out. But we don't want uh, we don't want to put our cards on the table. It's a it's a it's a bluffing game so you have certain cards that you know the russians have certain cards the chinese have certain cards and it's a bluffing game you don't want to put your cards on the table because you might actually show the cards that the russians or the chinese need so it's a it's a thing where you can't you can't have people stupid on the subject you want the story out there but you want to control the story as i believe they're probably doing with everything that they put out nothing that they put out is true i mean it's all a spun it's like i mean it's almost like the us military we rule the world uh, we, we did you know we made no mistakes in iraq we made no mistakes in afghanistan we've got the whole world under control we're the greatest thing in the world and this sort of stuff and you know that's not true you you know that they're they're going to spin the good stuff and they're going to avoid the bad stuff almost like the president when when it comes to the president he you, you have plausible deniability you do you don't want the, everybody to know what's actually going on so the president doesn't know anything about russia he doesn't know anything about whitewater he doesn't know anything about iran contra but when it comes to the good stuff like uh, job creation and stuff well that was the president the president did that but all this other stuff no no he, he doesn't know anything about that that wasn't the president and that's what they're doing they're doing this thing where they're spinning this story and it's almost like the thing that the people who have the, um, the gold, the people who rule are the people who write history. And so you're reading the history that they want you to, to have. And it's, it's not going to be accurate. It's going to be the way they want this, the history to be written. History is written by the victors. Yeah. yeah uh, exactly. it's, like, it's like what Plato talked about, the analogy that he made of the shadow play yeah. on the side of the cave, where you're actually watching the shadows, but the, the reality of it is actually on the other side of the cave. <laughs> it's far more it's kind interesting. Of, kind, of, kind of what it comes down to, yeah. I would consider you to be one of the foremost experts on what the presidents know or they don't know. Do you really think that every president knows everything that there is to know about what's going on with with UFOs? Or do you think that they look at some guy who was elected president and they say, I don't think we're going to tell him he's and then they'll skip a president and then they'll tell like the next guy that they know that they can trust because he's been vetted and they they disclose everything to him. Do you do? Do all presidents know everything that's going on with the, the UFO phenomenon or or what? I, I believe the president knows. I mean, I, I, I point out the fact that, um, um, well, there's, there's so many aspects to it, that if you're going to deal with a foreign power, constitution, like I'm a, I'm a Canadian, so I listen to you American people, and I like, like you people are, are anally retentive about your constitution. Like my First <laughs> Amendment right right to free speech, my Second Amendment to bear yeah, arms, exactly. my Fourth exactly. Amendment right against search and seizure. You come and talk to a Canadian about the constitution, and they'll say, the what? Like who? Nobody cares about the constitution here. Nobody right. knows anything about the constitution. So I have all these things. So the idea is that you're going to have 
that you had a situation where all these people, Americans, that have worked their way up through the government and are really into the Constitution, and then they get up to the top and then suddenly they sort of avoid the fact that the 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 head of state is the only person that can deal with a foreign power constitutionally that you if you're dealing with aliens you can't have a gs-13 dealing with aliens it's got to be the president that does the negotiation and the treaty so everybody's gonna say well okay we'll avoid that tech with the constitution we'll just let that go or or the fact that the the president is the command the mil the civilian commander of the military and that all the military people are going to say okay well we'll sort of uh look the other way on that one and we won't uh, abide by the constitution i think that somebody's going to defect because there's uh, he's the head of all the intelligence there's 17 intelligence agencies that we know of that uh, are all they have one job and that's to report to the president that's all they do they don't sell trump steaks they don't sell cars all they do is rep report intelligence to the best intelligence they can gather for the president of the united states and they're all going to suddenly uh go against the, the constitution and and their their oath to obey the law and uphold the constitution Constitution? No, there, somebody's going to defect. So they're all whatever's going on. They all believe that they're doing what's constitutional and and what's right. So what I say is that the president will know this kind of stuff, and if he doesn't know, he's going to start firing people. And and an example was when Trump came in. I was contacted by the biggest fundraiser, Republican fundraiser in Pennsylvania. He was a big UFO guy, and he said to me, he said, "We need to do a briefing for Trump, and we've got Rance Prius." And and we've we're gonna we we got contact with him and we need to know where the bodies are where the crafts are and uh, we want to give this stuff because we don't think they're gonna tell Trump, and I said well number one how do I know where that stuff is <laughs> yeah. I don't know I have no idea where this stuff is, <clears throat> and then I said secondly, I mean this is you're you're talking about Donald Trump. I mean, if, if, if he goes in, he, he always people use the word they. They're not going to tell him. Well, who are they? And he said, well, the, the, the people. And it's like, okay, it's, but it's his people. When he gets in, and he did, he fires the CIA director. He fires the NSA guy. He, fire, he changes all the – he puts all his people in there. And if all his people who now run all the agencies that have all the intelligence, all the military, all that kind of stuff, if his own people won't tell him, then that he, that's his problem. Because he could fire. It's the whole idea. And it's true. If, 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 if you say, I want the UFO stuff, and they say, well, Mr. President, you don't have a need to know. They say, okay, uh, leave my office. And then you just put it, give your secretary and say, I need that guy's resignation on my desk at 9 o'clock tomorrow. You bring in the next guy and you say, I want the UFO stuff. He says, no, okay, I want your resignation in my office. And you just keep going until someone tells you the story. The, the president has ultimate uh, power. He can fire anybody. He runs the whole show and he has no security clearance. So he can see whatever he wants. And to think that you're going to, like the there was a whole story about the Eisenhower was the last guy to know. And then Kennedy didn't know anything. And it's like, well, so what do all these people do? You have, you know, thousands of people who have all this information. So what do they do? Like, do they just sort of go on hiatus for five years or eight years until the next president, until they got a president they like, and then they suddenly get back in and give the information? That material, there's these systems that are set up, and everybody just does their job. I worked in a government. I worked at the university, and I know that I had the keys to the president's office. I had the keys to eight vice president's offices, but I didn't know what was going on. I Everybody just does their job, so you just do your 
little thing and the people are going to are going to put the material together that you're going to brief the next president on what's going on because that's what you constitutionally have to do and even though Obama may have not liked the fact that Trump won the election he gives the briefing and he tells them what's going on and he goes along with it because that's the the constitutional thing to do I, I absolutely believe that people are doing their jobs that I don't believe there's any evil government guys up there um, I've met a lot of these people that you know you hear about these people that you know you read with to the stars i've interacted with some of these people and when you actually sit across a table from these people and i've actually done like we had jim semivan who ran the to the stars he's the director and melinda leslie did the interview with him he came to her to her place in 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 Arizona and I knew the interview was going to take place. And so we were looking at questions and would he show up? Would he actually show up for the interview, whatever. And so the first question I asked her when it was all over, cause she's, you know, she's into mill abs and she's into, you know, the government's doing all this terrible stuff. And I said, okay, Melinda, you sat across from this guy. Okay. Question, good guy or bad guy. And she said, well, you know, I uh, didn't drink the Kool-Aid, but I did take a sip because when you are across from these people, you suddenly realize they're just ordinary people and they may be deluded. They may be doing something that's not that, that, that they, you know, you know, like a policy thing where they're totally off base on what they think they're doing, but everybody thinks they're saving the world. Dick Cheney thinks he's saving the world. Bush thought he was saving the world. Everybody thinks they're saving the world. And that's what I found when you deal with these people is that they, they are doing what they think is constitutionally right. That if there was all these things that people were uh, avoiding the president, all these constitutional things, hiding material and stuff like that, uh, somebody would walk with the material. Somebody would would defect. And because 14 administrations have dealt with this subject, seven Democrats, seven administrations, and because every single administration has done the same thing, would indicate that they all think that they're doing the constitutional thing. Because you're saying, okay, there's the evil government, so there's the evil Democrats. And then they, they, they get out of power, and then the Republicans come in, they do the same thing, which means suddenly they turned evil, and, and it, it doesn't make any sense. You, you have to have this situation where where everybody thinks they're saving the world and that the, the, the reason that they don't want you to know that the president is running this show is because it's plausible deniability. It's always plausible deniability. You don't want the everybody to know that the that the president is the guy behind the cover-up he's running the cover-up because suddenly i even i have the president's phone number i know what the switchboard number is suddenly you're going to have four thousand reporters to white house if it suddenly is realized that the president is behind the cover-up and they're going to start asking him questions and you don't want him an answering questions because as tom delong was told that you might find out that it's just a bunch of guys in suits standing around an elephant, that they really don't know what's going on, and you don't want to put the president up in front of 4,000 news reporters demanding to know about abductions and cattle mutilations and all sorts of stuff when the president really doesn't have any answers. He's the guy who's the most powerful guy in the world. He knows everything. He's, he know, he's the perfect guy. You don't want him standing in front of the cameras looking like a deer in the headlights going, well, uh, well, I, and having no answers for all this kind of stuff. You keep it away from the president because you really don't have the answers and you need the president to be this all-powerful guy who has all the, the questions. And so what they do is they say it's this evil cabal is running the story. They've, they've got all this material. They're hiding it from people. And they want you chasing down a dark alley after the evil cabal because you're never going to find them. That's what they want. They want to divert you away from where the actual – 
cover-up is taking place. It's taking place in the executive office of the president, I can absolutely assure you. And the and they, it's all plausible deniability to make you go in a different direction. I've never heard it argued quite like that before. I think that you've made a true believer out of me. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm one of those people who... who believes in the deep state i believe that there is such a thing as a deep as the deep state um yeah there well let me talk to the deep state because i believe there's a deep state too but there's a deep state with donald trump too the deep state is the people like people always argue with me and they say well you know the government won't listen to us and i say i think the 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 top money you can give for a fundraising dinner is thirty seven thousand five hundred dollars or whatever i say i will absolutely guarantee you that if Hillary Clinton was running for president and you went to one of her $37,000 plate dinners and you put up $37,000 and you went to talk to her about UFOs, she would talk to you about UFOs. If People say, oh, we're not affected by money. When some company puts in millions of dollars, they are affecting what's going on. That's the deep state. It's the people who are financing the elections. Those are the people. And they, yeah, they are running. The, the pharmaceuticals, the military industrial complex, uh, all these people are running the show. But it's it's an indirect type of thing where you're a president and you really can't do anything because you can't, like like Donald Trump, you started to take on the, the gun lobby. And he got 30 $7 million from the gun lobby and then you see him start to, to shift and now he's back to the the policy of the the the, the gun lobby where he's going along because you, they're putting in money so it's not that they're they're manipulating him but if you put money into a campaign you you are in a situation where you People are not going to turn against you. That's why in the UFO community, I always have this joke that I say, I stay one step removed from my victims. So I never really <laughs> interact with any of the major major people like Ron Pandolfi or people like this at the CIA. I always deal with people who are dealing with them because once you get face to face with one of these people and you have, whether it's a, a, a money connection or whether it's a friendship connection, then they say to you, well, you can't talk about this. I don't want you talking about this. And suddenly you're hands, hamstrung. You can't do anything. So there is uh, powerful things inside the government that are manipulating the government towards different things. Like a $675 billion defense budget is going to influence the, the whole UFO thing. And and so the people say, well, they're worried that they're going to weaponize the, the, the UFO material that they collect. Absolutely. You got $675 million worth. These are very, that's a very powerful lobby. They are going to do what they want. You are not going to overturn that with, with a good idea. So yeah, you do have these powers inside the government, but they shift in terms of who's putting the money in, who has the, the, the influence. And it's sort of, it's a more of an indirect thing. It's not, you know, five guys who have decided they're going to, uh, to run the whole thing. You may have five guys who have billions of dollars who have tremendous amount of influence, but it's, it, again, they believe they're saving the world. They're protecting their their interests, whether it's the oil lobby or, or whatever they're trying to protect. Uh, I can guarantee you, they think that they're saving the world based upon what they think they're doing. So, so, they, <clears throat> so they think that what they're doing is the righteous thing to do or yeah um I, you know that i mean i i always had the spin that they were some kind of um evil geniuses or something that you yeah. know they, they were getting they were going for power you know after money oh, yeah. after you have so much money then the next step is power 
And, well, that's and, saving and the world. Though. I mean, that, yeah, that's, I guess, that's, I guess that's, that's, that's how you that's, save the world. I mean, yeah, if yeah. if the Bushes have all the money, that that that's how you. One of the ways you save the world right. is you have the the people with, and that's the whole idea. I mean, with the uh, with this tax cut, is you gotta you gotta take care of the rich people because the rich people create the jobs, and it's that sort of mentality, whether it's right or wrong, is the idea that these people actually believe what they're saying. I mean, it's not like uh, I've um, the more and I do, don't really get into it too much because it, it gets to be a real ugly sub subject. I mean, I really don't believe the whole idea of evil. I mean, this we have this idea that we're good guys and there's evil guys out there, and then it's this belief in separation, and then we can kill people and we can steal their stuff and we can do whatever. And I don't believe. I think it's just uh, delusional people. There's everybody. There everybody's a soul reincarnating through lives, and everybody um, is doing the best they can. And it may be really delusional in terms of the fact that if we have all the money and all the power, almost like the United States of America believes that it's America first, and we. Should should have all the power and all the weapons and a, a defense budget that's bigger than all the rest of the countries combined. That's a good thing. If we have this, we are the light on the hill. We need this. And the rest of the world is going like, give us a break. I mean, uh, there's 64 million people wandering the world with not a place to live and stuff like that. And the Ameri and the United States of America has all this power, but Amer the United States of America believes it is right, righteous, and it is right that they have all the power. They're saving the world. Everybody believes they're saving the world. And so you, when you work under that thing, then you realize that, um, that, that it's a, it's an idea of belief systems that you could change the belief system that it, it's it's a it, when you get things that are going wrong, it's it's different belief systems that are uh, clashing with each other as to how the world operates or or how science should operate or how we should investigate. Even in the UFO community, it's belief systems. People have different belief systems, and you know what it's like. You cannot change anybody's idea. Once somebody gets an idea in their head in the UFO community, I mean, it's almost impossible to change them. And that's why they did this acclimatization, this confirmation thing. Is I say they fired the UFO community. They don't care. They, they know you're not going to go anywhere with the UFO community, so you bypass the UFO community and you go to the swing voters. All you're trying to do is influence a little bit, move the ball a little bit down the field by influencing the swing voters. And that's why the story was told by um, Jim Semivan when he did the interview with Lynn Melinda Leslie is um, he said that the reason Lou Elizondo did not go to UFO Congress is because he was told not to go. Why would you go to the UFO Congress? You're going to be asked a bunch of hardball questions by a bunch of very hard-nosed uh, UFO people. And when you answer the question... They're, they're, you're an intelligence agent. They're not going to believe you anyway, so why would you go? And that starts to make sense. You realize, well, no, they're not going to interact with us because they're not going to convince us. So you you bypass the UFO community and you go directly to the people and you try to make that move to influence the, the swing voters instead of trying to argue with people who have set belief systems. Yeah, and I think that's how Trump won, actually. He got the, he got the swing vote. You know, yeah, and, uh, yeah. He was able. Well, that's, that's messiah. What really happened. Yeah, that's what happens yeah. in the UFO community. Trump, Trump, and as I say this with with with, uh, it happens every four years in in the United States of America. Is everybody sits there and they go, uh, which one is the messiah? I wonder if it's <laughs> Hillary or if it's uh, uh, Trump. And and they sit there and they go, well, you know. Uh, 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 I think he's probably more the messiah. And then the. Most presidents, when they come in, have like 70 percent, uh, you know, approval rating. And within six months, it's down to about 40 percent because everybody goes, oh, it wasn't the Messiah. I thought he was not the Messiah. The Messiah. Yeah, Darn yeah. it. We thought we were that, getting the Messiah. 
Yeah, because people, they say, well, you know, what's the guy going to do for me? Like, what, what are you going to do for my district or for my state or whatever? Oh, and it's yeah. like, same with the aliens. I say you're confusing it with Santa Claus. And that's what happens in the UFO community. People say, well, why are the aliens coming and help us? Why don't they save the <laughs> Why would they? Well, they're not Santa Claus. That's not what it's about. It's like they're not here to give us stuff. And most people want to, you know, just drop the free energy stuff and then get lost. Give us the free energy stuff. Give us some more toys and then get lost. That's not why they're here. I mean, it's all, to me, it's all messaging. It's this idea of the, the the message of the oneness of the universe that we have to stop the separation, uh, the belief in separation that you and I are different, that we're all one, we're all connected. The Ronald Reagan thing, how the world would unite. Uh, you know, we're all God's children. It's all one thing, and quit fighting with each other. And that that's the kind of message. But we sort of get into the idea. You know, it's like the the, the politician. Like, uh, what what's the, what are they going to do for us? And, and if he if he does something for me, then I'm going to vote for him. And and when he doesn't give it to you then you're all upset because oh he didn't he didn't produce he didn't he didn't do what he said he was going to do he was going to give me some new christmas presents and he didn't give them and now i'm upset with the guy and it's like so it's this and every four years everybody does the same thing i've got the answers i've you know i can solve all the problems of, of the united states everybody says the same thing when they're running for president and every four years everybody takes the bait and they fall for it again all over again they realize they got taken the last time and say, oh this time is different this time well this guy sounds like he He's got the answer. He knows how to save America. And just, you're going to turn it around. And it's like they're playing the Messiah card. And and it's just crazy. But uh, people are so easily manipulated. It's it's unbelievable. It's like like a snake oil salesman. You know, yeah. they've got, they've and got it works. The, they've got the medicine that'll cure all of your yeah. all of your ills. And then, yeah, and, you, and then you get that those politicians who say, I have all the answers. And the number one, the top the top number one answer is hard work, and number two is a little sacrifice. That person's a villain. That person is an awful human being. Let's hang him. Let's burn yeah. him, hang him, stone him, bury him, dig him up, and do it all over again because he says it's going to take some hard work. There are no easy answers unless you consider yeah. hard work an easy answer. Yeah. And that's what happens in the UFO community as well. Is everybody's looking for uh, sort of a messiah, somebody. So everybody's always looking for the next UFO story. They're looking for the next story to break. And so when someone like Tom DeLonge comes along and says, "Oh, I've, I, I have it all figured out," and that's how they play these guys. That's what I said. They, they, whether it's Stephen Greer, whether it's Bill Moore, whether it's Tom DeLonge, they go to them and they say. You're the only guy that knows what you're talking about. You know that. Eh? You're, you're the guy that has it all figured out. And they go, yeah, yeah, it's true. And then they start playing them. And, and a lot of people will jump on the thing, whether it's you know following Stephen Greer or st following uh, Tom DeLong or whatever. It's because they, they, they're not really prepared to do it themselves. They, they're willing to just sort of uh, uh, jump on. And what I say is I have 100 people on a list, the way I work. I have 100 people on a list. I'm looking for all these high-level people that I think should know what's going on. I got a hundred people, and I listen to everything they say. And I, my number one rule is, don't drink anybody's Kool-Aid. Because the minute you drink one guy's Kool-Aid and believe that he is the Messiah, that he has got the truth, then you're you're lost. Then suddenly you start separating yourself from the other guys. Oh, my guy's got the answer. Your guy is is full of it. And that's what happens is people jump on these various bandwagons and then you can't move them off these bandwagons. And I, I've been, I guess I've been on them myself as well, but you have these movements where people join movements and that's how we can be manipulated is everybody's looking for the, ne for the next Messiah, almost like the election. We're waiting for the guy who's going to come and finally straighten out Washington. And so every, everybody's watching the next story. So the next UFO video comes out and everybody goes, oh, look at it. Here it 
it is. And everybody jumps on it, and, and it's, it's, it goes viral. Everybody's doing this sort of thing, and then someone says, hoax. And he goes, oh, hoax. And everybody runs off, and they go for the next UFO in the UFO video. And it's so easy to feed videos and, and UFO sightings into the UFO community because everybody's always waiting for the next story to break. That's the one that's going to to bring us disclosure. And nobody's willing to go back and actually investigate anything that we've already got. Walt, they're, hung, they're, they're hungry. Walt, Walt we, need a, we need a camera and some pie tins. <laughs> I, I, How do you weigh in on um, – do, do you feel the human race has been um, injected with alien DNA or, or exposed to alien DNA in any way? Do you do you have an opinion on that? Um, well, the experiencers are saying that, that they're altering our DNA. Um, I, I would have to just go along. I have no uh, uh, proof. What I'm saying is the, the whole idea that that dna is random that's where i'm going to sort of dispute with this thing with the remote viewing is that yes, the yes, whole idea I, is I that, that it's yeah. that's all random so like with this atacama alien i mean we have seven seven random genetic mutations all taking place at the same time and that's like uh, the way i'm going to be describing it in the future is that this is building seven it's like yeah it just fell yeah 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 and you know, no it doesn't make any sense no no it just Building seven just fell. I can tell you, it just—it was tired. It just fell down, fifty stories, just collapsed at, at free fall <laughs> yeah. speed, you know. And and yeah. it's like that's what the Atacama thing. It's like you know the thing had teeth. You know this 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 supposed fetus had teeth, and it had uh, you know the stru body structure with the the calcium of a seven year old child. It's like no no, it's a fetus. No no, and it's like you just can't get through it. It's like building seven. It's just this crazy stuff where you're you're up against um, belief systems that are, are very hard to shift around once people sort of get the idea that 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 something is something, and and so you almost have to sort of do your own uh, work. And the, the DNA thing is a, is a very important part of, 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 of evolution, but in terms of how, to, how do things actually happen? Is, are things happening randomly through genetic mutations, or is this a pattern? Is it a Rupert Sheldrake morphogenetic field type thing where, where uh, cells are able to uh, duplicate themselves? You know, I always tell the thing with a cell. A cell has 100 trillion atoms. So in 15 hours, this cell that supposedly has no consciousness, can actually source 100 trillion atoms. It can gather them all together, get them and put them in the right order, in the right the right uh, spot, and mm -hmm. do this all in 15 hours and give it life, and it'll be exactly the same type of thing. And this is happening by accident? I don't think so. It's like it's a very, very complex world. And, and what the aliens is basically, we're, we're, the intelligence, whatever it is, is basically they understand things that we don't, that we just make all sorts of stupid assumptions that we got it all figured out and we don't have anything figured out. We are like the uh, the guy standing around an elephant trying to just feel around and, and guessing at, at what's actually going on. The world is much more complex and much more magnificent than people can ever imagine. Mm -hmm. what, what is your... What are you working on, Grant? What's your current project? Are you starting a new book or um, are you going to extend well, the, uh, the Tuned In book to another uh, volume or... Well, the where, tuned where, in thing. I'm, just, I'm gathering new stories for the tuned in thing. I'm doing. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm doing the follow up book to Managing Magic because all this stuff has happened with Tom DeLonge and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, and that's so, a really that's a great book too. I I, I yeah, read that one the last time we we talked to you. Yeah, so I'm I'm doing the second book on that. I'm doing what's mm -hmm. happened because the Tom when I wrote Managing Magic that was before Tom DeLonge went viral. I mean, and, mm -hmm. and I talk about Tom DeLonge in that book. I basically say this guy's this gonna this is gonna happen. And basically, I said what happened. I said would happen in Managing Magic that they were gonna. 
I was told these high level officials would come out, they'd out themselves, they're going to drop all this material into mm -hmm. the public. This is the latest Messiah. This is exactly what happened. So I know I'm doing the, the latest book and I'm going to do the, I'm going to do all the aliens. I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to do all these alien things. So three fingered aliens, I'm going to do the Atacama and I'm even going to do the Roswell thing. And I'm going to basically say, this is, this is psychops as well, that this is uh, people are saying, ah, oh, no, it's just, uh, this is mummies and stuff like that. And then you start looking at it and it's like, come on, give your head a shake, man. I, you, you know, I'd say this thing's an alien, but to say the stupid stuff they're saying this is, is, is that we're getting conned again. It's just the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to do the, the follow up on the Tom DeLong thing. I'm going to do the whole thing where this thing with the Atacama, they may have jacked, if you've seen the latest Stephen Greer thing, they may have jacked the numbers. I, I've got some testimony. I'm trying to get the guy on, on record that they actually screwed with the numbers, that uh, this thing was really a lot less human than, than what they're saying, that they actually purposely changed the numbers and stuff like that. So that book I'm going to do, and I'm doing uh, the book on the the, the music thing, but I'm just basically gathering stories, and I'm mm -hmm. doing the story on the Zendras, the story of the uh, the Zendras, these inter interdimensional portal things that are with these uh, Mission Rama things, this whole idea that we may have portal technology, that you can actually have these interdimensional bubbles that, that are created, you can actually walk in and end up on, yeah, walk onto another planet and stuff like that. Wow, that's exciting. And, and, and that was another message. That was a message I got last August from this alien when I'm going across the Nevada desert with this girl that was with me and on her cell phone. I said, get the message. Get exactly what the message is. And it was this message that, uh, you know, there was going to be a program sighting Saturday night. And they, they, Aunt Terrell, this alien, knew I was coming to the mountain. And I'm going, okay, you know, I'll play along with the game. And uh, they had these antennas or people who are able to predict exactly when this is going to happen. And two of the antennas said 9.33. And at 9.33 above my head, this flashing thing started. Uh, and I tell you, man, when that happened, I saw that, that, that these people had picked off the time. And this started happening over my head. I mean, I, let me tell you, I drank the Kool-Aid. And I, I was into this thing. And I figured, like, wow, these people are onto something. So that that is the book I really... Uh, was sort of halfway through until this uh, New York Times thing broke and I got sucked back into this rat hole mm -hmm. of disclosure. Mm -hmm. But the, the I'm more still into the consciousness thing. I want to do the, the consciousness thing and these 24 download things I got about uh, looking at reality and, and things that we've we sort of sort of maybe have gotten mixed up in in how the world actually works that's the more important stuff but i have to oh yeah the consciousness the consciousness work i think is the most important thing that's yeah. that's what's going to really help people move along you know yeah. move move on down the yeah. road spiritually which yeah, is I, what i took away from from tuned in yeah and um, i think a lot of people are, I think are, are more and more people are catching on to that all the time a lot of people are still into the story they want to hear a good story they want to hear the story about you sure. know Sure. Video or they watch videos. People can watch those uh, in New York Times videos endlessly. Or they say to me, you know, the problem is we didn't have 15 seconds before or 15 seconds after. I said, you could have like hours of those videos. Nothing changes. I mean, it's the same thing. It's not telling you anything. But people love to see videos. They love to see pictures. Mm -hmm. They love to hear stories. And so uh, I'll do that. They, they, they love to be entertained. Yeah. And so I'll, I'll <laughs> but I think you can do, I think you can do both. I think I always yeah. thought you could entertain somebody, but in the process, yeah, raise he, their consciousness. Yeah, I think yeah. that's really what art is, you know, strives to do. Yeah. Yeah, actually. exactly. Yeah. So that's, that's what I'm working on now and hopefully we'll see where it goes. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stories. And then of course I was, uh, when it rains, it pours, I was dropped a uh, hundred pages of material from a, um, um, a eyes only study for president 
Johnson. So I've got this material and uh, the names of the people around the committee and stuff. So I'm going to work on that. And that, again, goes to this idea. Does the president know? Well, here's another study for the president that show that, that the president knows and that the, they, they really don't know as much as you think they know. They really uh, don't have the secret space program, all this stuff, that a lot of this stuff just, just ain't so. That they, they are basically struggling to figure out what stuff is going on. And that's what the aliens are doing. They're sort of playing with us. And uh, as Jim Semivan said when he was asked who's running it, he said they are that the aliens are basically running the show and that we're sort of observers standing on the sidelines and that all the stuff that, you know, we've got this under control and we're shooting down alien ships and, and we've got these crafts and we're flying them around and stuff. I think a lot of that stuff's going to turn out not to be true. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I have, I have one more question I'm yeah. trying to ask. Have you ever met Neil Young? <laughs> no, someone offered to get me an interview with him. I don't know oh, what yeah. I'd really ask him if, cause yeah. he's in San Jose and, and I right. uh, just I just spoke there in San Jose. Uh, I was offered um, to, to for the tuned in book, which I haven't done, is to go to to Bachman. That uh, Randy Bachman apparently is mm-hmm. into UFO stuff, and yeah. I, I I happened to run. I was doing an interview, and the girl was helping run the crew. Said, "Oh, you got to give me the book. I give it to Randy Bachman. I played with him for two years." I said, "You played with Randy Bachman for two years?" I was like, "Are you kidding me?" And she said, "Oh yeah, they all read this kind of stuff when they're touring and stuff like this. They're all into this UFO stuff." And I'm going like, "Wow!" I mean, it's like to get to get a comment like that. Cool. But we, yeah. there's there's a couple of musicians that are into it. There's uh, Michael Fankhauser who wrote the famous song Wipeout in the 1960s. He's ah, really into yeah. this stuff. I've cool. had a lot of conversations, a lot of interviews. I've been on a lot of interviews on UFO stuff with him. I mean, he he's had the downloads, he's had the UFO experiences, and he knew all the, he knew the Moody Blues very well. He's good friends with John Anderson, and John Anderson, of course, from Yes, was the guy that that told Colin Andrews he was at the Caesar's Palace up in the hotel room, and an alien came through the wall and gave him information. So uh, there's a lot of these people that Fankhauser's in contact with, and uh, he, he's an interesting guy. If you ever get an interview with him, he's he's done a lot of UFO stuff. And and he yeah, was, I saw him and I saw he was mentioned in the book. There was a yeah. little section on him. Yeah. Yeah. So um, well, I I can't thank you enough, Grant, yep. for for joining us today. The book is amazing. It really is. I I highly recommend it to all of our listeners and and anybody who, like I said, it's even if you're not totally into music it's got a much larger message um which which is really important and that's what i always look for uh you know i I love music but but it resonated with me on a on a higher level even than than just the music part of it yeah um yeah good eric you have anything to throw in uh no i'm just trying to not not have another coughing fit i i just think that it's amazing i think it's amazing when you come on and you always drop some knowledge on us and a lot of food to 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 digest uh food for thought as it were um and it was just like don't stop writing you're doing a great job well thanks yeah uh, hopefully something's getting out it's like uh it's it's almost like you know you can't you can't let it go like there's always a story of people say oh this guy quit he quit the ufo committee and goes don't worry he'll be back i mean it's something you can't do so I, i'm sort of driven it's like it, i'm retired so this is basically all i do 24 hours a day so i'm it's glad your, it's you found some some help in it it's in your dna <laughs> you got it <laughs> okay grant thanks okay. a lot i appreciate you being here and and okay. yeah, anytime you you want to come back and talk about one of your works we'd love to have you okay thank you gentlemen thanks bye grant okay. this has been the metaphysical connection podcast from the fedora chronicles network 
Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Google Play, or Player FM. You can find our podcast via your Apple, Android, or Windows devices using those services and more. If your favorite podcast service or program doesn't feature us, let us know by shooting us an email via info at thefedorachronicles.com. That's also a great way to get in touch with Walt, Jim, and Eric, and let us know what you think of the podcast, as well as topic suggestions for a future show. If we use your suggestion, we'll send you a t-shirt or coffee mug. Just send along your size and preference with your email. You can be a part of the metaphysical connection between shows by joining us on our social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook by going to our metaphysical connection group and following us on Twitter at physics laxative. Most importantly, you can support the show by hitting the Patreon button on all of our show pages, metaphysicalpodcast.com. Patreons of the show get specials such as getting the podcast a day before the rest of the audience, heads up about future episodes and other exclusives. Want some Metaphysical Connection swag of your own? Get your own damn Metaphysical Connection coffee mugs, t-shirts, keychains, and barbecue aprons at our Zazzle page. My house is full of them. Yours should be too. Find them at www.zazzle.com slash Fedora Chronicles. Don't forget to check out our show sponsor, the Trinity Whip Company. Traditionally made kangaroo whips, top quality craftsmanship, in form as well as function. Handcrafted by Blake Brunning. Find his products at www.trinitywhipco.com. So for Walt, Jim, and Eric, this is Carol Fisk thanking you for listening and signing off. Until next time, keep your chin up and your bra, excuse me, fedora on.